Welcome back to We Want More, the Harry Potter and the Analysis. Ah, uh, man, I ruined it. That's all right. We're staying with it. The Harry Potter Roll and the Methods it. of Rationality Analysis Podcast. Brought to you by, from the cool folks at... Doof, Doof Media. Media. There we Ta-da. go. I mean, we Thanks for saving you. me. No worries. Got your back. Yeah. Down. Hi, everybody. I ripped the jingle for this off. Yeah, that's Brian. This is Steven. Uh, We're doing I ripped the, the jingle off for this from the audiobook. I wonder, Matt did the... Oh, that reminds me. As long as we're talking about Doof Media, I bought my wife and I copies of uh, Stephen King's uh, Gunslinger. I had never I, read any Stephen King before because I'm same. a filthy plebe. Um, you know, actually, both the reasons people are going to hate. Are you ready for this? One, huh. I don't read a lot of books. I should read more, <laughs> and I is, don't. Which is odd, considering what. Yeah, basically, I. I find things that I like and then just continue to exploit them, and I, I hate trying new things. But the other thing is that, and this is probably the reason that people are going to string me up for, I I don't know, a lot of his movies, are, like the movies based on his books, were moderately okay. Like, I don't know, the 80s ones were fine. But I was like, oh, okay, I've basically seen them. But I'd never got around to like bothering to check out the, the long versions. So mm-hmm. if so, I'm going to be hated because I'm like, oh, you know, the, the, the movies were, were pretty much good enough. And I never bothered to read the books, and everyone's gonna be like, "The books were better," and I'm sure they were right. So I actually, I tell, I never read much um, horror. Um, I, is Gunslinger even considered horror? No, it yeah, is a it's a fantasy book. Yeah. Um, but I think I stayed away from Stephen King entirely. Like, I don't think I've I have not read any Stephen King. I think I maybe read like a short story or something. I couldn't tell you what it was though. But um, and I think because like I had like the 1980s slasher movie concept of like what horror would be. Um, like, like they're all like Jason or Mike Myers or whatever. And right. so I never really read them. And I think it was until it was my, uh, my, my friend who does that podcast about the X-Men, Seamus. Um, he got me on, uh, Clive Barker and it wasn't, he was like, his, I don't even think it was one of the horror-ish ones. I think it was like the great and secret show or something. So it wasn't even that very horror-ish, but it was like, it was such a different vibe than I thought horror was going to be. Cause I think like, like fiction horror written horror is very different from uh from like movie horror shows probably just because it's like it's different like visuals and editing are a much bigger deal in a horror movie than they can be in a book but yeah i should read a proper horror book at some point too but um the reason i brought all this up it sounds like a total tangent uh i got gunslinger because the uh newest podcast by the doof media network that um matt and scott host uh, in this one, Matt is playing the Brian and Scott is playing the Steven. And uh, so to make that less uh, <laughs> less confusing, S- Scott has read and enjoyed Gunslinger in the past, the, the series, not just the first book. And Matt has never read them, so they're doing it that way. And, they and were so the, I that bought was the, my wife and I copies. So that for the, the, worm. They're Worm. They're, they're, this is the opposite of Worm. That's right. That's cool. And so, yeah. Um, I bought my wife and I copies so we can keep up with uh, Kingslingers, which is the name of that podcast, which is my really long way of getting around to talking about the cool thing that they're doing. Um, so everyone should check out Kingslingers. If you haven't read uh, Gunslinger, or if you had, I think there's something there for everybody. So the people who haven't read Kingslinger or Gunslinger and people who have read it encompass the entirety of the human population. So all of those people should check this podcast out. Oh, they should be like the people that have sort of read it. Yeah, it's that's like right. The, I guess like the, the, the pedantic who... urge just to contradict you for no good reason. Oh, and the reason well, I brought up actually, uh, 
Yeah, right. The reason I brought up the movies was because I didn't see the Dark Tower movie because I heard it wasn't that good. So it was terrible, actually. Yeah, which sucks because it's got my uh, boy Heimdall in it. So I know. Anyway, that this isn't a book about the Kingslinger uh, or about the Gunslinger uh, book or movie. This oh, is you mean a... that guy from Cats? <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> that will be what he goes uh, down yeah, for. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, he's the guy from Cats. Yeah, that guy. Oh, he's yep. good in cats. <laughs> you mean that guy, uh, Ian McKellen, the guy that was in Cats? Yeah, and nothing <laughs> <Yes>. else. <laughs> the, the movie which shall not be named. Okay, so speaking of things that shall be named, uh, five minutes into this, we are talking about... <laughs> oh, yeah, what is it we're doing? Chapters 35 through 38. What happened? Oh, uh, yeah, um, stuff and things. Cool. You want to get us started, or you want me to get us started? Uh, I, 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 my, my, I'm still stuck in Gunslinger, so I'm going to have to, like, okay, wait, Harry Potter, and there's something about a computer simulation, and, oh, wait, yeah, the war's over, and Quirrell is peeved with Harry. Where do we come in? So this is right after the speech that they gave, that Quirrell was giving after the, uh, yeah. you know, the other two generals had decided not to go with traitors in their army, and... Um, he was stressing the need for like uh, unity among the population and you know you guys should all unite behind a strong leader and take his mark and then you'll be ready to face whatever the next threat that comes in your life because your parents deserve to lose because they're a bunch of wimps and I got to see that I was like being I I was fully on the hook uh, following along with like hey wait this sounds like fascism and then why yes it does sound like fascism Yes, indeed. And so that point wasn't, wasn't lost on Harry. And when Harry <laughs> contradicted him uh, during their, um, uh, I don't know, argue, the, the argument version of speeches, I guess their public mm-hmm. debate sort of thing, that pissed him off. So he said he had talked to him privately, and here they are talking privately at the beginning of Chapter 35. So, Yeah, and, uh, and is, is it just like after the fighting get a good sense of the timing? I don't know that it matters, but is it like the next day or something or... I get the feeling it's like 15 minutes later. Oh, really? oh that's right, because it's just coming right after the, like, ooh, I need to speak to you. Yeah, he said, I yeah. need to speak to you now, so I'm assuming that's right around now. Um, yeah, and I guess I'm just, so they're, they're sort of just having, like, the the long, drawn-out version of the argument. They were just kind of hinting at each other while they had an audience, and Quirrell says, says that kind of explicitly, like, oh, there's arguments you should be having out in public, and then arguments you should be having alone, like we are now. Um yeah, and he, he's kind of like putting Harry down, and he's like, you know, I forgot that, you know, I, I make allowances for the fact that you're a kid, but sometimes I forget that you're just a meddler, and I hope that you didn't meddler. just... Meddler, which is a hard word to say. Yeah. I hope that your childish meddling has not just killed you, ruined your country, and lost the next war. And Harry tries to point out that, like, look, you've got to understand if you have any sense of muggle history... What you're talking about is a lot like the the stuff that the, the fascists were talking about, and that's that's a, kind of a bad thing if you're paid attention to history of the Muggle side of things in the last century. And Quirrell's comeback is just him was a good, was a good flexing. Comeback. Yeah, I like it. It's, oh, so the nasty Italian fascists believe that unity is stronger than division, said Professor Quirrell. Sharpness is beginning to creep into his voice. Perhaps they also believed that the sky is blue and advocated a policy of not dropping rocks on your head. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was it. And then it said, and then Harry responded to that Re- reverse stupidity is not intelligence. The world's stupidest person may say the sun is shining, but that doesn't make it dark out. 
Um, and we said that I had, I had, I couldn't find it. I think it was Thomas Friedman, um, had written some article. It was about Donald Trump, but like the phrase he kept going back to was something like, uh, just because Donald Trump believes something doesn't make it wrong. Um, <laughs> it was like a point he kept going back to. Um, yeah, that was actually yeah. the example I was going to use. Like it, it's, it's general. I mean, it's, uh, it's easy enough to, to point at anything he says and be like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and safely bet on the opposite of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, like a week ago, he was on the news saying, oh yeah, we've got, you know, there's like 15 patients in the U S the Corona could be down to zero, could be going down. Maybe a miracle will happen. Um, literally quotes. I'm not just pulling this out of the, out of my ass. Um, he was, I got the impression of, um, <laughs> but the reason, uh, so he was talking about coronavirus, I mean, or COVID-19, if you want to be fancy, mm-hmm. um, like the reason that he's wrong isn't because he said it it's because that's not how that's not the established consensus of people with the understanding of of viral epidemiology right uh so he's he's wrong because he's wrong right he's wrong for other reasons than for being himself and so that's 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 what uh this reversed stupidity is not intelligence and in fact there's a fun short less wrong post about how you can't just like if someone was that wrong about everything where you could just take the opposite of every time they say something and just the opposite was true every time, mm-hmm. the person would have to be basically super intelligent to be that reliably wrong. Mm-hmm. Like if, if the opposite of what they said was true every time. It's, it's one thing to be a little wrong on everything. That's certainly possible. Consistently but, wrong. Yeah. That's kind of like be, with what... But to be consistent, to yeah. be able to take the opposite of that and say that's the correct answer, then your dumb thing would have to be like crazy smart. Yeah, in it some reminds me, weird reminds sense. me indirectly of kind of like when Harry was talking to Draco about like once you know what the once you know what the actual answer is, then you've already designed your conspiracy theory explanations for everything. Uh, it's, it's almost kind of like a, a version of that where like to be capable to be wrong all that often means you have to know what the right thing is to figure out what wrong would be. So. Yeah, and we, we talked a bit about. Um... Carl Sagan's parable of the dragon in the yeah. garage that yeah. yeah Harry throws at Draco at some point. Um, anyway, I I did like some of the some of the exchange here. We can or I guess you, you had a couple of notes that you pulled. Yeah, I thought about it that um because it made so this one is like, a lot of my uh, my cognitive dissonance is around not knowing what it is we are intended to take away from something we're reading. But this is one of the ones where it's at least a little more clear um, that that Quirrell is being pretty. Clearly here, like this, we are not, we are not meant to agree with what Quirrell is saying. He's being uh, mustache twirling and evil in this moment, and and it's and it's clear that we are supposed to think of it that way, um, and that so we're not supposed to go. Hmm, you know what? I never thought that about. Maybe fascism has something going for it that I hadn't thought about. Um, we're supposed to be like, uh, yeah, this this line of thinking from Quirrell is how you get to dictatorships. Um, what that made me think though was that around his other thing around um, like, oh, da- this the whole idea that he's brought up a few times of dangerous knowledge needs to be guarded before we let it out in, into the public or otherwise, you know, we, can, we might blow up the earth with nuclear bombs or the wizard version of a nuclear bomb. Um, and that we've gone back and forth in the Discord, I think even a couple of times about uh, about how stupid an idea I think that is. Um, like it's just an unten not not that the not that there isn't terribly dangerous knowledge and that like yeah we might actually we might have blown ourselves up with nuclear weapons and we might still do something that's the equi- equivalent. But let's all just sit on the knowledge and make sure only the right people hear about it. Seems like a really naively dumb 
approach to trying to fix it. Like, like that's not ever going to work. Um, and to, so, but this is a, this situation with this, you know, unity through strength, uh, speech he's going through, um, seems pretty clearly like we're supposed to see that like, okay, that's not going to work. And it seems like that kind of goes in hand with, you know, being as equally ill-advised as the, let's not let the unwashed know the important stuff idea. Um, but it may, it's, and that's why in my confusion, because when we've talked about this with people who have read the whole book, um, who kind of know how, like what the punchline, all these thoughts are, um, I, you know, I hear people defend, I heard Eniash defending the idea that like, oh yeah, there's dangerous things and we got to keep, um, you know, not let the dangerous information out into the wild. Um, so people defending that idea, having been exposed to it, not only here in the beginning, but whatever this rest of the story that I don't know and that everybody else does know. That's where I get confused that like people defending it makes me think, okay, then it is laid out that way. And that's what we're supposed to think. Um, but it seems like they're the same thing here that they are that not that not that they're the same idea, but they're being treated in the same way that like Quirrell is saying one thing that's very clearly not a good idea. And um, so that, that brought up my confusion around that whole other idea of kind of the like there's going to be some Jedi Council that's going to know what, you know, what science is safe to be let out into the real world. Sure. No, I think I, I'm following you. Like, I think part of it is that there, there's a um, like a bit of a disconnect in so this is the you know Quirrell advocating for fascism is Quirrell alone advocating that the guarding of dangerous knowledge is something that wizards seem to take as a granted thing so it's like uh, the the way that if the author is trying to make a point it's probably not to agree with Quirrell here the author um, and you know, some readers, like, I mean, you know, like, you and I talk, well, I'll finish my point and then I'll get back to the specific example. Um, the, the guarding of dangerous knowledge seems to be an accepted, um, convention for wizards, whereas fascism isn't. So I don't think that those are things that were, you know, supposed to, like those, those two approaches are, are granted as different, I think, between all these different people. Right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, but is your impression that the given that you can you can't spoil anything for me but i mean is your impression of when cuz i think it's been twice that that Quirrell brought up that idea of like oh you you stupid muggles nearly killed yourselves with nukes or something um but i i kind of got the impression that maybe not that it was like some central theme or something but that that was something we were supposed to sort of take away as as a a thought we are supposed to maybe agree with um, not necessarily it was being preached at us, but it was it was not there as a as a thing for us to go like, ooh, there's a dumb idea. Um, no, I hear you. I don't think that. That's or is it just like, like was it to you? Is it just like a passing like like a little throwaway? You know, like not important. Uh, like on a scale of one to five, of like five being the most important thing to take away from this book. Well, maybe that's clearly five the most important thing in the book. I, I'm going to put it at like one above the bottom. Like it's not yeah. a throwaway thing because I think I think there is some wisdom in that and like the generalizable version is like if you have a dangerous idea, don't run around telling everyone about it. Um, like, I mean, uh, I, so it's hard to give examples of why this is a bad idea without giving real examples. Um, so like we talked about that that face scanning app that that guy that that small mm-hmm. team in Australia made, right? Like 
it might have been a better idea to keep keep your hat on that. But that's the sort of thing that is going to get out any, anyway. Like if I had a really clever idea for how to circumvent airport security and kill many thousands of people very easily, I probably shouldn't post the idea on Reddit. Um, and if I did, it would make sense not just for the mods to take it down to try and hide this this knowledge, but it also makes sense for my friends to tell me you're an idiot. Don't tell people about your your really clever way of killing people. So yeah, I and mean, I guess and that's why I mean we've beaten this to death. Yeah. But um, but it's not like so that example is obviously contrived and like that is not the ninety percent case is going to be something that's like a lot more incremental knowledge that isn't in and of itself it's not like one single like oh i found out if you push this button over here it's going to make this thing blow up so let's not tell people about the button it's for the most part it's going to be stuff that's more complicated and kind of additive in the way that it can be dangerous and your ability to keep a lid on it is going to be really really limited limited and the you know, unintended consequences of all the trouble you go to to try to keep people from sharing knowledge about other things is like seems a lot more certain than your ability to have it actually benefit anybody at all. Because it seems like, like, because that's sort of like the thing people think about is like, okay, yeah, don't tell, don't give people the plans to the nuclear weapon. But that is a very rare thing. And, and that's like a smaller, that's more like, do we keep data classified versus, you know, are we just not going to let people study nuclear physics? Um, I think, and I, we'll, we'll push past it just because it's not yeah, really the focus of the chapter, yeah. but I'll, I'll, I'll remark just as a joke, because Harry makes the sort, same sort of observation, that there could actually be really dangerous knowledge out there that some scientists have discovered and just haven't shared. And if they have discovered something like that, then it's probably a good idea that they kept their lid on it, right? Um, yeah. Somebody else might come across it, but... You know, for all we know, it's really easy to, I don't know. That's, pra uh, that's practically conspiracy theory at that point, though. No, definitely. It's, and it's not something that I could substantiate or, like, place a confidence level on. I, I would think it's probably pretty low. Like, I mean, uh, mainly because I don't know enough science that, like, all the low-hanging fruit everyone else can grab, right? So mm. all the stuff that they could have discovered have to be really high-hanging stuff, and I don't, I can't climb that high. So <laughs> I, I don't know what sort of things that they might have discovered. But I, I think that... I guess just to, you know, to to close the book on this, like, I think that it's not an important thing that we're supposed to run away from this book with. It's it's something that I think does have real world thinking about or, or real world applications to think about. And it's not like a core thesis. Yeah. Yeah. I guess and like kind of back to more back to this chapter, like I was just more confused about it because it seemed very similar in, in the way that we stumbled into the idea um, that the, the, this fascism stuff and the, the stuff around, I don't even know what you would call it, Jedi Council for Science, um, seemed like we arrived at them in a similar way. Like they were things being stated by Quirrell as, you know, common wisdom, or at least like, oh, all smart people think X. Um, so it made me confused, like, oh, are we, are, it made me go back and think, like, oh, okay, is this maybe, again, a spot where, you know, something I was seeing as, okay, that's dumb, was actually intentional. Um, still not sure. No, I hear you. Yeah, I think, like, at the top of the book, the author says that not everything that the, yeah. the protagonist does is lesson in wisdom, and advice from darker characters is 
uh, should be, you know, considered very carefully or something. Yeah. Um, and I think I maybe that's where it's that, only been like recently that where it's I'm like, okay, yeah. And I'm still like so much uncertainty around for me, like knowing, you know, how much of this am I supposed to take a certain way or not? But then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The stuff I hear people say about it who have read the whole thing is, is going to be a good clue. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I, anyway. I mean, Quirrell's the only fascist we've met so far. I'll put you, we can, we can move with that. So. Um, and it's interesting. I'm not a fan of fascism. I'm also not a, <laughs> a deep scholar of, of 20th century. How yeah, do you know you don't like it century. if you've never even tried it? <laughs> but I do wonder if there's more wisdom to that sort of mindset in the specific circumstance that Quirrell is talking about. Where, look, we've got a population of like 15,000 people. And you guys were mobbed and terrorized by 50 if you guys weren't a bunch of wimps uniting around one strong person, at the very least, Quirrell is wrong, but in a very uh, interesting way. He's not just, you know, oh, I, you know, we should, and he's certainly, he made clear he's not advocating for himself. Maybe he is, who knows, but he didn't seem like he was trying to say, everyone take my mark. It's this cool, is a, it's a cursive cue with a wand, you know, crossing <laughs> it over it or something, right? He would have um, a cool, cool mark. Yeah, I bet it would be cool. But, um, like... I guess uh, I'm not making this point uh, eloquently. I think I think Quirrell is wrong, but in a way that makes him a compelling, yeah, uh, well, compellingly was, wrong, right? Yeah, and I pulled a quote a little after that. That's kind of what you were saying. It's Quirrell saying, and while Dumbledore was a flawed leader who was losing the war, it is ridiculous to suggest that any of the ministers of magic elected during that period could have taken Dumbledore's place. And when I read that, what it made me think was. Um, and I, I think this is on purpose, I think, um, that putting it that way and that how true that seems, then at least for me, also brought up, made it more evident how fictional that scenario is. That, I mean, yes, you do need an effective central leader with power and everybody behind him in order to fight off dark wizards. <laughs> and that's why we have democracies and not government by rolling. Um, right. Because in the real world with real problems, the problems are complicated. The solutions are complicated. Getting everybody to go along with it is complicated. It's all just a big mess. And you need somebody, you, you need an ability to navigate only getting 60% of what you wanted. Um, yeah. And I agree. And it, it's, it's, I think that's all I think, you know, at least for me, I think that was, I think we were supposed to take that away from it, that he's saying like, Oh, look, you need, you know, Dumbledore never could have could have won this. Could have I mean, an elected you know Cornelius Fudge couldn't have won this. You needed a Dumbledore, and I think what that made me think was, yeah, but that doesn't happen in the real world, and that's why democracy is better. It would be nice if our problems were as black and white as look. There's this guy with a yeah. you know, red eyes and, and a snake face that's trying to kill. You know, that's killing a bunch of people. We all need to stop him. It'd be nice if if, if humanity's problems were that black and white, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. There was another line. That, oh, yes. I, I just I double checked. And this this chapter was written in 2010. And so there's a line in this that aged really well uh, when Quirrell is talking about how dumb democracy is. Uh, he's like, oh, I see you like democracy because you were raised with it. You know, you didn't grow up, uh, you know, um, really enjoying uh, revering Quidditch. And if you had, you, it's the transparency of how dumb it is wouldn't be as obvious to you. But because you grew up with democracy, you think it's the coolest thing ever. The last Muggle newspaper I read that said said the last president was a retired <laughs> movie actor. And, oh, I think uh, it's supposed to be set in 91, though, right? 
Yeah. So yeah. So he's talking but about but it was also written in 2010 before Trump was on the was oh, on yeah. the on the world stage, and so um, that I feel like. Well, it no, yeah, no, I well. think it's just, oh, well, yeah, I guess that's it, true too. But I think it's, it was, I, when for, I read that, that he was like trying to, that he was very consciously like putting this in the year that it was supposed to have taken place. Yeah, that too. I just like that because uh, it's, if anything, it, it's. Still it's true. easy to see from well yes it's still true but it's if you're if you're putting on your quirrel glasses it's really easy to see where he's coming from yeah. and he's like look at these fucking idiots their democracy they're electing you know uh, game show hosts and actors and mm. you know these, these idiots to, to rule them no they need strong powerful people yeah. um, and again I think and I think oh, you did a good job here because I think we're also supposed to like we're supposed to see how easy it is to make that argument and that it is uh Attemptingly, it is not a good argument, but it is an easy argument because it's always super easy to just point out how fucked up things are. There's always something fucked up somewhere, and, and then your simple solution seems like the right one. And that's um, why I really like what uh, the what the what the story is doing with Quirrell here is that um, yes, we disagree with him, but it's easy to see where he's coming from. Yeah, like yeah. he he's not the boring bad guy, you know, who just wants to destroy the world because he hates it. Right? Yeah. Those guys suck. Um, you know, and it's not even it's not even clear. Well, certainly, it's it's definitely seems clear to me that uh, Quirrell isn't being the bad guy in his version of the story, right? Yeah. Um, he's like, no, I this is the smart policy that will save everyone. So yeah. he's he's trying. Uh, to you, do know, the right the, you know, thing. you said I'm still not clear. To me, it's still a little ambiguous. Is this like a an honestly held opinion, or is this some kind of sinister manipulation that he's trying to do? Both of them would be cool. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not t- totally sure. Or if it's some like, you know, ugly mixture of the two, where he's trying to manipulate Harry down a certain path while also semi kind of believing what he's saying. Quirrell is always playing up one level higher than us. Yes. yes. Yeah. He's he's awesome. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, then then Harry kind of retorts to the the whole thing about you know you're a kid and that's why um, you you know you should have kept quiet and we should talk about this here and. Harry says, uh, you know, I'm no friend of Albus Dumbledore, but he's no child, and he didn't seem to think that my concerns were childish, nor that I should have waited to speak them. And Quirrell says, oh, so you take your cues from the headmaster now, do you? And then he stood, stands up from behind his desk, and we get a, a scene change. Um, and it goes to Blaze Zabini. Zabini. Is it, was this a real guy in the original books? I don't remember him at all. I can't I remember. remember. I've got my Harry Potter lexicon tab open, but at this point, it doesn't matter. So, yeah. um, I don't think so. I will double check just because people have kept kept telling me that yes. we should look it up. But in any case, why don't you summarize what goes on with Zabini? So yes, uh, it, it took. I didn't quite get it at first. So it sounds like he. It's not that. Is it? Zabini's not in this office. It's that he like stops Zabini on the way to seeing Dumbledore. Is that? Did I read that right? Yeah, yeah. That, so he's like stops in the hallway, too. basically. Yeah. So yeah. So Zabini's on the way to talk to Dumbledore, and we're not entirely sure why. Um, like we don't, we're not really told. I don't think. Um, and so Coral stops him, and Coral's basically like, "I know you." I don't remember his exact words, but that like you were employed by someone, or what? What was the price? Who are you working for? And what was? How did they buy you? Um, because he's telling Zabini, like, I know that wasn't just, like, your own idea to have it be a tie. Um, and so I know this is part of somebody else's plot, but, but, and then he pulls the old, like, oh, I, and I know who it was, but I just want to hear you say it. Um, 
Which first? <laughs> you you did <laughs> not devise to, yeah. to the plan of today's battle, Mister Zabini. Tell which, me who did. Which for some and, for somebody theoretically such a uh, eighth dimensional chess genius as Quarrel seems like kind of a obvious like. Uh, oh really? I mean, I already mm. know, but but tell me. I so there's I mean if we're if we're assuming that Quarrel is still playing eighth dimensional chess, the fact that he's acting dumb here could be playing a point, and part of it I think he wants Zabini to say unprompted from Quarrel mm. that it was Dumbledore. Um, so that since Harry is standing right there, he gets to hear it from Zabini's mouth that yeah. Dumbledore orchestrated it. And to appease everyone who is uh, walking Harry Potter lexicon, I can confirm that Blaise Zabini was indeed in the books. Uh, Thank God. And that his, mo- his mother also was apparently a famously beautiful witch who married seven times. So uh, both of those things seem to be canonical. And let's um, let's be real. So, well, I guess we'll get there um, about his mom marrying seven times because that's, yeah. that's just ripe for a joke. So. I got, I got a, that struck me as something like, oh, there's more. This isn't some kind of inside joke thing again. Uh, it seemed oddly specific. Um, but anyway, so, was, but what what Quirrell gets out of Zabini is that Dumbledore, uh, and he's sort of vague about it, but that his cousin was being bullied. Um, and that Dumbledore was kind of causing it, maybe nudged them, I think was the word, uh, and that if he helped him with this uh, plot, that Dumbledore would get the bullying to stop on his cousin, and so it was this, you know, ooh, Dumbledore's doing sinister, terrible things, yeah. which we are led to believe for several pages before we realize that that's BS. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, I forgot, I, I didn't forget, well, I kind of just forgot the order that things are going on in, yeah. so yeah. Um, but then you get this really short, another scene change where it's then Harry there and he's apparently observed this conversation from underneath the cloak and he's just outraged that, you know, Dumbledore blackmailed Zabini by threatening his cousin just to make our battle end in a tie. Like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this nice quote from Quirrell. He gives a birthless laugh and then says, perhaps the headmaster thought the rivalry was good for his pet hero and wished to see it continue. For the greater good, you understand. Mm. Which, that, that's kind of a fun line to us, because we know that from, I guess it was like the seventh book or something, that like, for the greater good was the thing that really compelled him for a while. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, there was... Uh, now that we're playing all that, now that we're talking through this all again, uh, I'm, not, I'm not buying it with Quarrel. I don't think Quarrel was a fool here. I think this, this feels more like something Quarrel staged for Harry's benefit to see... It's 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 too too sketchy a a a theory and he's and he's pretty vague about like what Dumbledore's motives for doing it would be the there's kind of hand wavy the way Quirrell's talking about them so I think I think Quirrell's bullshitting Harry here that could be that's, that's, I mean that's so my his, theory yeah that's fair the the rest of the quote was that um, you see Mister Potter everyone knows that Dumbledore's madness is a mask and that he is sane pretending to be insane. They pride themselves on that clever insight, and, knowing the secret explanation, they stop looking. It does not occur to them that it is also possible to have a mask behind the mask, to be insane pretending to be sane, or to be insane pretending to be sane pretending to be insane. And I just, I love the the, the recursive, uh, mm-hmm. like, ways of thinking about it. Um, so, then it's, uh, oh yeah, before we get to, um, like you said, several pages later, so the some of the stuff that happens in the middle... We get yeah, so Harry kind of like yeah, Harry kind of talking himself through uh, what he just 
went through and he's kind of talking about that quarrel sees this there's going to be this big conflict between muggles and humans and and that how all and he kind of ties it back to the idea of like common enemies and that how ugly it would get if the whole wizarding world and the whole and all of muggle world uh became enemies and, and went after each other and i th- think the the thought that he has that he thinks has not occurred to Quirrell is just if there's maybe a million-ish wizards, um, there are billion-ish, um, multiple billions of humans, and that the numbers are so bad that he thinks Quirrell is is really, in spite of how much more powerful wizards are than humans, that the numbers are just not good, um, and that he thinks Quirrell is is uh, miscalculating where Harry's sympathies would be. That if he had to choose sides, that Harry's like uh, six billion people. Um, and that also Harry ties muggles um, with science. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to be on the side of scientists. I think you pulled a good quote for it. Um, yeah, I grabbed that quote. I, I like to thought, I don't know. I mean, that's actually something fun to speculate. I kind of take it as a granted that a hundred dedicated wizards, if they were all as powerful as Dumbledore and, the, and Voldemort, that they could easily destroy the world, destroy all of muggle mm-hmm. society. Like, if it and that's that's not one million of them. That's just I I think you know maybe even ten. Like I like so Harry when they're having their debate about democracy and, and you know powerful uh, you know a single powerful ruler. Harry is like, well, you could just imperious the ruler. And Quirrell says, you you know, strong wizards aren't so easy to imperious. And that was a thing from canon too that it's possible to uh, be powerful enough to override you know a general imperious curse. But I'm assuming that that's like some level of magical might like it might be possible for the more the for the most uh you know stalwartly uh mentally um powerful humans to overcome imperious but that's not clear like i think with a dozen wizards the imperious curse apparition memory charms and uh you know every other tool at their disposal i think a dozen wizards could destroy the planet if they were if they went just toe-to-toe with muggles you think that Muggles would stand a good chance if they were like, oh shit, there's wizards, we gotta get them. I, I, I think that's the idea that, that Harry's saying. I mean, because that same line of thought could be applied to a dude with the nuclear codes. Um, so like that level of being able to be like, you know, completely destructive is already there with science as well. So I think that is what he's thinking. And it's sort of like, you know, I don't, it's a little too, it's too hypothetical to kind of play out, but um yeah, it seems to be like there's, I don't know, I guess I'm picturing like an entire, you know, an entire armada of ships and uh, and fighter jets with bombs on them and, you know, just and 30 incoming nukes on Hogwarts. Like, what are they, there's, there's only so much plot armor you can wrap around Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. And you still have to point your wand at the person and say Imperio, yeah. like, it's not like Professor Xavier level where you can just send out a mental pulse to make everyone forget your existence exactly. or something. So, um, I think that's the and, idea. But. Yeah. And the there's the other line right before we get to Harry's decision on what you do in the event of the war. I liked his, his thing before that. So Quirrell was like, you know, oh man, uh, you're going to have to, you know, you just may have fucked yourself. You might have to fight this war by yourself. And um, so then Harry has this thought and it's kind of broken up with like different lines. And he's like, mm. but the truth was, well... Harry was sort of okay with that. It was, he knew, the kind of thing that was supposed to make heroes resentful and bitter. To heck with that. 
Harry was very much in favor of everyone else staying out of danger, while the boy who lived took down the Dark Lord himself, plus or minus a small number of companions. If the next conflict with the Dark Lord got to the point of a second wizarding war that killed lots of people and embroiled the whole country, that would mean Harry had already failed. Um, I thought that that whole line of thought I thought was really interesting because it, it rang very true in sort of like the sincerity of the thought. Um, but yeah. it also seemed like so kooky. Not, kooky is the wrong word, but it like it, this kind of like his like childish naiveness combined with that weird like intellectual arrogance thing of like that part of him that takes himself seriously as the boy who lived like not that Jesse's literally the boy who lived but that like like well of course it should be that way because I am the great and powerful Harry James Everest Potter something something um I agree that, and yeah and I think and I think we were supposed and I think we're supposed to take it that way there was like like look at this weird mental place Harry is still in that that he's like a taking on the responsibility of the entire universe on him um, in a sort of combined, like feeling overwhelmed by it, but also feeling like, yes, it's his responsibility. And then the kind of weird literal magical thinking around the idea that this one 11 year old kid is actually up for the task. Um, yeah. Like I, to, to bring it back to, to my own home turf of, of Marvel characters, like Harry sees himself, you know, kind of like a, like Iron Man, right? Mm. He's like, yes, I am that badass, and yes, I can do it by myself mostly or with the help of some companions like the Avengers. Mm -hmm. But how much easier would the conflict in like Wakanda and Infinity War have been if they'd been able to call in strike jets from the U.S. Uh, Air, Air Force, right? Mm -hmm. um, hey, will you throw some bombs over here? Like That would have been super helpful. So having an actual army behind you is actually helpful. In, in, granted, I'm now generalizing from fictional evidence, but in, in the real <laughs> world too. Um, in the other fictional world. Yes. But Harry, like you said, this seems like a very true sentiment to him, and it shows that he's still kind of thinking childishly. He's yeah. thinking of it in terms of comic books, which I, I actually really enjoy. Um, yeah. It's not clear whether or not that things, you know, that sort of thing can bite him in the ass or if he'll rise to the occasion and be Iron Man. But um, it's like you said, I think you captured it well. You said that it's the sentiment seems genuine. Yeah. And it seems like it's him being full of himself and childish. Yeah. And Harry's sort of like, Harry doesn't have an in between of like he's either the smartest kid in the room or he's completely worthless. Like, he doesn't have an in-between, like, oh, he's, like, valuable and is going to be able to, like, help things. It's either I either I can do this or nobody can do this or I'm completely useless at this or I'm the only person that can fix it. And and most of the things that he's completely useless at, he'll say, doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that, that fits his character pretty well. Yeah. I can't think of anything that he's come across that he thinks is important that he also sucks at. Uh, Although a little bit later with the, when they he, he talks a little bit, that's also kind of a complicated mess. But the way he talks about um, Hermione at Christmas dinner, like he's yeah. okay, he's okay losing to her, but it's also kind of a mix up. Like he's okay losing her, but only because she's super genius. Yeah, like if, if, it, if it merely meant that, like, oh, I'm really good at this, but not you know amazing, that would be less okay with him. But it's okay with him to lose to Hermione because she's also you know superhuman. He, yeah, he's okay listening to Hermione. Yeah, again, because she's she's uh, you know she's another Avenger basically, mm -hmm. but he wouldn't be okay and chill losing to a mouth breather like Ron. So. <laughs> Swish. Um, <laughs> so, 
then yeah, when he was thinking about the greater enemy that Quirrell kept kept insinuating in his speech, and he was thinking about uh, the war of extermination, and he says that was the one thing that Professor Quirrell hadn't realized, the, mo- the one most important question he'd forgotten to ask, that, you know, if I had to pick between a scientific, scientific civilization reaching outward, looking upward, knowing that its destiny was to grasp the stars, and a magical, magical civilization slowly fading knowledge as slowly fading as knowledge was lost, still governed by a nobility that saw muggles as not quite human. It was a terribly sad feeling, but not one that had hint, any hint of doubt. Yeah, and that's what, uh, when he said this, and then what we were just talking about, with like, okay, if it was you know, hundred wizards versus, you know, the rest of the world, like this is still this is a wizarding world that hadn't, didn't, want to be bothered with the idea or have the ability to get to the moon, um, which seems like like that should just not be very hard for a wizard. But so there's still like it's kind of like wizards think small, and so like, you know, yeah, Dumbledore could you know, Voldemort could conjure up a dragon or, you know, something like that, which sounds like really impressive from a magical thing. But, um, you know, Voldemort's, you know, picture Voldemort's army of thousands of zombies and dragons and whatever other kind of magical shit you've got versus a regiment of 50,000 soldiers with tanks and guns. <laughs> oh, they're still like, okay, yeah, that one, the other one's boring, but it's, it's large scale. Yeah, and so there's, there's. I think Harry's thinking that it wouldn't be such an easy fight, but also that he would, he would side with the Muggles. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, and and granted, he's, you know, he he uh, determines earlier that he wouldn't, like, he he's not content with it ever turning into an actual yeah. war. But if it did, he's like, dude, I would sacrifice the million wizards to save the Muggles in a hot second. Like, yeah. it's sad, but it's true. Um, I like that. It it shows where Harry, you know, I think Harry thinks of himself as a child of the enlightenment first and a wizard second yeah right yeah and i think and then it sort of just kind of equates like like that if you know if muggles are science um that that he sort of characterized not harry but that this that yudkowsky has characterized wizards as being as thinking small um and that that it could be you could have like flashier magic in the short term that you know a a flaming jet out of your wand sounds more impressive than a dude with a gun. But kind of the science equivalent of this is it's, yeah, it's one guy with a flame shooting out of his wand and the entire air force on the other side, or, you know, just something like science is more boring, but more determined. And Um, the, the mentalities of like, I think he, again, with his childish naivete kind of equates all of humanity as, you know, uh, children of the enlightenment and, mm -hmm that we're all looking to the stars and reaching upward. Most people aren't, you know, and that's a drag, but the enterprise of science is, and there's no equivalent of that in, in the wizarding world. And yeah. I think that that's what he values the most is like, no, the, the curious, the investigative and the, um, uh, the scientifically oriented, right? The, what it means yeah. to, to look up at the night sky and say, we can have that, um, which is the thought that, wi- that uh, wizards don't really have, it seems like. Yeah, and that's but kind of the cool idea that this whole book comes at is like there's no reason you can't bring that to magic, and like what Harry starts with with his first little experiments with transfiguration, like there's nothing about that that approach, the scientific method that is excluded from magic, um, and that you could make magic be the best of both. Totally, I mean getting cool. getting to the moon, I think it'd be yeah. insanely easy if you could just make your own. Uh, 
rocket ship out of a dime in your pocket. You just transfigure it into a rocket ship that'll last for days because you're a powerful wizard. And you can transfigure your own fuel, which is the hard thing to, you know, oh, power. Yeah, that's cool. the heavy thing to power off a ro- to power a rocket. Um, you could transfigure I mean, Mars dust into fuel. Well, you could just nice. transfigure. You might be able to just conjure it, right? Like, I, I, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, probably some momentum spell. And plus there's like, um, there's spells that make things change weight, right? Uh, if you could make the ship really light, you could just throw it at oh, the yeah. moon, basically. Like, it sounds like it's just not, the, the wizards didn't get to the moon just because it never occurred to them to try. So, uh, anyway, um, we can move, if you have anything else on that, or we can move to uh, Zabini's Yeah, we've got to get to that, get to that bit. Yeah, we kind of cut back and forth a lot in this chapter. Yeah, there's a lot um, of line breaks, yeah. a lot of scene changes. Yeah, so then, so I guess it's Jen basically just moments later then as Zabini is still trying to walk to get to Dumbledore's office. Um, we get, for some reason, I get the, I get the visual I got. So he's walking by and basically it was just sort of a, hey, psst. And, and then he's like, there's some like dark hooded figure in the corner that he's talking to. And I, the visual I kept getting for some reason was um, Kermit the Frog as a Sith Lord <laughs> meme. Like evil Kermit. Like, I just get, I don't know, just some weird like, non-specific dude in a dark cloak yeah like you, you can't see so the, the the figures described is uh in the small shadowy corner was a black cloak so wide and billowing that it was impossible to determine whether the figure beneath was male or female and atop the broad cloak or atop the cloak a broad brimmed black hat and black mist seemed to gather beneath it to obscure the face of whoever or whatever might lie beneath mm-hmm. um that paints a picture in my head just like of kind of, I, I guess it it paint, I, I think the picture was convi- in my head is close to what it was trying to convey, but Kermit the Frog is funny, too. <laughs> I, uh, that, that did hit for me a little mental note of that it seemed like 10% too much effort to make sure that we thought that the gender of the person couldn't be determined. So I don't know, that, but it's just my, like, oh, maybe this, whoever this mysterious person is, like, leaving the back of your head, maybe it's female. Who knows? It's definitely probably... The most uh, important thing? Well, that I was I was going to even go one further. I was going to say it was probably Lucius Malfoy pretending to be Voldemort, pretending to be Professor Sprout, pretending to be Hermione. Yes. Yeah. You, you've got to be paranoid. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd like me to think that you think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> so the Mr. Hat and Cloak is apparently what Sabini calls this character in his head. Yes. So he says, report. And... <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, you you can read whatever you want from that, but it sounds like uh, Mr. Hat and Cloak and Zabini had set this up in advance, and uh, and that and that Mr. Hat and Cloak had like fed him all the lines to say not only like how to how to pull off the whole like throw the game um, to make it a three way tie, but also then what to say to Quirrell, um, like a, predicting what Quirrell would say, and then what to say to him. Uh, in response, and this all seems like a very, a very, a very complicated plot, and we don't really have an idea of like what the end goal for it is either. And Zabini nope. doesn't even really like. We don't know what the hell the point of any of this is, uh, and Zabini doesn't and doesn't really seem to care, other than he seems to enjoy the fact that he can double cross people, like that's yeah. sort of a, that is its its own goal. Yeah, um, that that's that's how I read it too. Like yeah. Zabini. I it's we never get to see at least uh, 
we, we don't know what the previous conversation looked like, but he's just like, no, nah, man, I did it because I got to look better than all the other generals. Like, it was awesome. Yeah. So um, he doesn't really seem to care uh, what all this is about. He's just... Um, and then we the- get dropped for reasons that are bizarre that his mother married seven times and got pulled some kind of like black widow thing. She got married and left a bunch of money seven times in a row. Did the dudes die every time? Yeah, apparently yeah. that's also in the, in the Canon book. Apparently that must've been a throwaway line um, at some point in the original series. Cause I'm, I am looking it up on the lexicon and uh, she was married seven times. Each of her wealthy husbands died a mysterious death, leaving her a lot of gold. And apparently that was in the Half Blood Prince. So um, <laughs> that's legit. That's funny. So there you go. Uh, anyway, all that tells me. So well, then I like how then Mister Hat and Cloak is like, really? However, did she persuade the seventh to marry hmm. her after he heard what happened to the first six? Oh, I asked Mom that, and she said I couldn't know until I was old enough. And I asked her how old that was, and she said older than her. <laughs> and all that means is, I mean, do you want to say it or do you want me to say it? Say it. I, you know, sounds, I don't sounds think like, this way. You're, you're the one with the dirty mind. What that means is that it sounds like Sabini's mom can suck a mean dick. <laughs> nice. You know, that's not how you wrote that in the notes. No, I wanted to get a laugh out of you and it worked. Nice, yes. You're sa- I, put, I personally find that offensive. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean and to. And yeah, I don't I, like thinking about Zabini in that way. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Zabini's mom, who is of age... <laughs> no, I'm sure what okay. it is, is she just ha- she, she has a winning personality. No, your sick just... like incest fantasy thing is just gross. It's just gross. It's offensive. It's Excuse inappropriate. Me. It's inappropriate. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I think uh, I I don't know where I'm picking this this impulse up from. Yeah. So I, bet a, it's just I don't, a I don't know. I, it says and... something about what you're into, man. I don't. You know. Yeah, definitely. Whatever. I mean, you know, uh, let's be real. Savini's mom probably is just like you know really nice and probably you know, very generous with her time and, and buys dinner and stuff and is just very thoughtful and, and then, then murders turns around black widowism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, she may still suck a mean dick. Who knows? <laughs> All right. That was funny. So, um, uh, as Zabini's walking away, he's, he's thinking, uh, well, I, he has this kind of funny thought and he's like, well, but then again, Mom, mom hadn't betrayed seven different husbands at the same time. At the same time, when he looked at it that way, he was still doing better than her. And then he was walking to the headmaster's office, content with being a quintuple agent. And then, for a moment, the boy stumbled, then straightened, shaking off the odd feeling of disorientation. And Blaze Zabini went on walking toward the headmaster's office, smiling, content to be a quadruple agent. Oh wait, I didn't pick up that it went from quintuple to quadruple. Oh, you thought it was just a double typo? Uh, yeah, I th- yeah, I thought it was just a... Well, I just thought it was the, um, you know, just repeating repeating the paragraph again. I didn't get that it, uh, didn't pick up that it had changed from quintuple to quadruple. Oh, see, when you put uh, the wink face, I thought that, that meant that you oh, didn't no, pick up so on I, it well, I, No, I got that it was, uh, uh-huh. that it was repeated, that he was supposed to have had a little, been obliviated or whatever at that point. But yeah, no, it went from, oh, okay. So then that means that that specific interaction he doesn't ever remember doing. Okay, then. Maybe. Or maybe he just forgot to who Dumbledore was. No, he said he's going to the headmaster's office. Yeah. So that part. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, whatever it was, he was just, yeah, so he was just made to forget that particular one. I guess I knew that that's what it was anyway, but yes. I, and I can't feel like quintuple. I don't know who like the, I, I couldn't count to five in that whole scenario anyway. 
would it be? It was uh, like I think it was Quarrel. Oh, wait, but Quarrel wasn't one of the people that he thought he was. No, I think he was going to play off uh, like the three generals, the Dumbledore, three generals, and then Dumbledore. Mr. Hat and Cloak. Oh, uh, okay. And then it went down to four, and presumably uh, it's the mysterious person with no name that is the one that he forgot, because he'll, he'll bump into the other four at some point. So. And so I guess we're, so this is likely the same person that gave Harry the cloak, or it's whoever, it's whoever gave him that little Christmas note. The cloak isn't, or the word cloak oh, the, is in both of those things. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Now the question is, would, would I lay down a, a, a quote-unquote clue like that for you if it was Probably real? No. Or would I double bluff you and it's totally the, and you're totally See, right and I'm just trying to, trying to get you off the trail? This, this is why that game just doesn't work. Hmm. Well, we'll see. All right, so um, next up we've got yeah. Aftermath, Hermione Granger. There's a lot of aftermaths. Yes, this is definitely, and this is something that the, after the book has done a couple times before, where like a big thing will happen, and then it'll do scenes from a lot of the impacted characters mm-hmm. after the fact. Um, I do like and he did that 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 thing he did with the quintuple quintuple the the way that he like just repeats text, um, use that for effects. It's good. It's a good technique he does. Totally. So, Hermione is oh, yes. in the bathroom where she apparently goes to think. Uh, <laughs> I, it's not clear. I, I, I don't know why that made me chuckle. This this is the first time I've laughed reading that line. Like, was she in there using the bathroom or not? Or was she just in there thinking? Like, you think she could go to the, <laughs> go to the library or go to her dorm room or something just to think. But, um, you know, I guess the bathroom is a nice secluded place. People don't bother you. Unless it's a giant, or a, a, excuse me, not a giant, but a bright, shining... Uh, cat made out of moon colored sunlight mm-hmm. so and it speaks in professor mcgonagall's voice so you're like oh excuse I me i was just trying to think here on the toilet and boom and i didn't oh yeah no one was she was coming out she wasn't like in oh, the know, bathroom but, stall but if it had gone a minute earlier it would be inappropriate that's that's true um i didn't i don't recall from the originals that <clears throat> that patronuses were something that you could just kind of like use as your you know page boy you are recalling incorrectly. That is the thing they do all the time. All right. Fine. Yep. Fine. That's one I don't have to look up. So, when do they do it? I don't remember it. Like, when is that uh, done? I remember... I only remember, instance, remember them being, like, super dramatic, or there was, like, the, the stag, or the... No, not the stag, but the... There was the Patronus that was actually Snape using uh, Harry's mom's Patronus and... Right, yeah. like they only ever had like dramatic yeah they, they were only like they weren't just sort of like you know hey could you go fetch that person for me uh the first one that comes to mind i think is in the beginning of book seven when somebody i can't remember if, it, if it's harry's cohort or somebody that's working with gets a message from king r kingsley oh is yeah, yeah. i think yeah he sends his patronus ahead at the the party that the death eaters are about to show up and he sends his patronus ahead to tell everybody to run for it that's right there you go. So they, uh, it's yeah. not clear what the rules were there. Like on, if you could just have it, if yeah. it like copied your mind, you could carry on a conversation for you. If it was a fast yeah. messenger pigeon or what, but something like that. So seems and, like at least my impression was like it was always a bigger deal. Like it wasn't just something you kind of casually did. Was, who knows? Yeah, that's true. Not it critical. did seem like a bigger deal, but yeah. they don't have you know pagers or cell phones in Hogwarts, so they totally could. 
Oh, there's that weird thing with technology not working around it, right? So, uh, uh, Morse, uh, what do we call a uh, telegraphs? What was those things where you just like did Morse code over that? Uh, that yeah, telegraph? telegraph. Yeah, telegraph. That sounds like good work in Hogwarts. There's basically, sure. I mean, sure, there's electricity involved, but very little like science. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very little, very little technology. You know, it would work those little cup and strings. Yes, yeah. I think like. So the, it crosses into science, like the the amount of like what grade in elementary school did you have to go to before you understand how it works? Hmm. Once you get past, like they can like anything up to eighth grade count is okay. So uh, I don't know. It'd take a smart eighth grader to build a uh, telegraph from scratch, but I think but I'm sure it's you can tell. No, I'd like a, like kind of like a summer school class with like basic electrical wiring kind of stuff. Like that'd be fine. I mean, you just got to like hook up a battery to a wire to a thing cover that in eighth grade mm, so if, if, science you, if, to me. Yeah, if you try to get like a like a transistor involved or something then then that's definitely science yeah there's too many syllables in the word transistor for that to exactly. work so all right so hermione gets a message from professor mcgonagall saying hey can you come to my office and not tell anyone that you're on your way there and sure on my way so um i also like this too it's from hermione's uh point of view and just there, it's just a throwaway line, but it says, by the time Hermione had gotten to the office of her, of her favorite professor, and it's just like, that's how she thinks mm-hmm. of Professor McGonagall. Like, she's like, oh, my favorite professor, yeah. She's everybody's favorite professor. And that's true. Um, she kind of is. I just, was, was, I, just, yeah, it, really. I just like feel like that's originals. a nice little, like, that's true. Um, she's definitely a lot of fun. Unless, well, I, I honestly, my favorite was probably Mad-Eye Moody, but he's yeah. favorite for the exact opposite reason. Exactly. Um, yeah, it just it's just that Hermione would think like that, and I think it's cute. So, um, I guess Hagrid actually would probably be everybody's favorite teacher, but he apparently doesn't exist in this universe. Yeah, they mention him briefly, and then we have he hasn't had any screen time since. Uh, he did they did mention like the whole boat ride over um, with the giant, and then Harry was asking about half giants mm-hmm. and half goblins and stuff. But uh, yeah, we haven't. You're right. We I don't think we've seen Hagrid at all. Uh, yeah, I think he's. I, and I don't think we've. I don't think Hagrid's had any dialogue. I think he's been like an extra on the scene a couple of times. Yeah, he's he hasn't I mean, been any. I mean, misremembering front. that. No, I think you're right. I don't think he's had any any stage time. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so Hermione is at uh, Professor McGonagall's office. I've been talking a lot. You want to take it from here? Uh, I'm, I'm, my brain's not working. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, what, so no, but she just uh, comes in, and it was sort of an odd conversation because it was it was more like you think like oh there's some super important thing, but really it was just that that McGonagall brought her in just to go like oh I'm worried about you, um, that it didn't actually have like a super specific need to be brought in, but like the first thing she says is that um, don't worry I already know that Dumbledore uh, told you what you should wish for. Um, for winning or for tying uh and hermione does the like oh who told you and she's like uh dummy you just did um mm-hmm. but uh i wrote that she rolled a nat one on a speech yeah, chat one yes and then i'm not even gonna go to, no i will go into my stupid uh my completely you said that one so you made a D reference and then i just saw onwards with my kid today and they have a gelatinous cube do you remember did you play dungeons and dragons I didn't. I wasn't cool enough. I played I, one camp. I played part of a campaign of Pathfinder once. So, oh, yeah. 
They, they bring up a no gelatinous cube. I'm like, was, I'm like, wasn't gelatinous cube like an actual thing in Dungeons and Dragons? And then they act, then like later, because they keep talking about, it, and then later they actually show the thing. I'm like, that is exactly the gelatinous cube. So you go. I thought it was a cool like authentic Dungeons and Dragons reference that didn't actually seem like it would be real. But. What is the gelatinous cube? It's, it was such a like a holdover from like if you have if you were going to play a board game that uses graph paper and maps, so you were going to draw tunnels that were like rectangular, then you would have a monster that fit exactly into the shape of your rectangular tunnel. Um, yeah. So it was a gelatinous cube. It was a cube that was exactly the size of the tunnel you were in that would like come marching down the tunnel and would dissolve you in acid. Oh, nice. It was, it was just green jello that would, that would eat you. And it so. was the only thing to do to run away, or I'm assuming at higher levels you could kill it, right? I, I forget. Yeah, I think like fire, so yeah, I can't remember. But... There you mm. go. I remember it had like it That's had very funny. very bad artwork in the monster manual for it. Well, it sounds uh, like onwards. Sounds like a hip movie. It actually, actually children. was pretty good. There you go. Nice. You can, you can see Dungeons and Dragons. I know we have one listener with kids who should who, who uh, might consider seeing this with their kids. So we have one listener. I'm sure. I, I'm thinking specifically of, of one person <laughs> that I know of. So. And you know today's who episode you are. brought to you by Pixar. By gelatinous no. cubes. By gelatinous cubes. <laughs> Brought so, to you by something that a Disney owns, by something owned by Disney. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's, Hermione is like, oh man, I can't believe that I, you know, I, I botched that because uh, Professor McGonagall points out that like, no, I was just, uh, it's good to see that Mr. Potter hasn't corrupted you too much. You're not supposed to admit anything just because I say I know. As it happens, the headmaster did not tell me. I just know him too well. Um, so yeah, like she did the whole, I know what you did. And she's like, Oh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. And Oh, ha ha. You confessed. Um, <laughs> Hermione doesn't was... have, what, what it amounts to is Hermione has no practice being dishonest. Yeah. I was, I mean, but th- this whole conversation really was kind of non-specific in the end, wasn't it? Like she was just sort of like, Oh, there are plots afoot and I'm concerned that you're involved in them. But she didn't really have a lot of specific anything to warn Hermione about did she or did I did I miss something no that's my read on it yeah. too and and it's it is interesting because like sending a messenger pigeon to say hey can you come to my office and be secret about it sounds yeah. like it's very serious business but all this is is like a hey kid how you doing hey just yeah. you know maybe stay away from those scary kids and don't get, get involved in scary stuff all right yeah. um that's Hermione, kind of yeah. that could have waited yeah and Hermione feels a little insulted that that she's being treated with kid gloves uh, and also wonders, I think this elite wonders also that like, would McGonagall will be as concerned if she were a boy in Gryffindor instead of a girl in Ravenclaw, whether or not she needs to be concerned about getting involved in these non-specifically dangerous uh, machinations. So, which I think, which kind of a leads in later to the way when, because uh, the chapter after this we get into is, is Christmas at the Grangers, um, where we do can get more explicitly into uh, kind of the gender stuff around the way Hermione is treated. Um, not, not always specifically gender, but at least for me, I think. I, I guess maybe what came up for me was uh, sort of being more conscious of how Yudkowsky sees Hermione as a character in here and what gender might have done to the character that he's not going to do. But Yeah, it certainly seems that he's he's conscious of it. And like, so far, there's nothing overt in Hermione's face, and like it, it's almost as overt as it gets here with with Professor McGonagall saying, 
you know, you're a young, you're a young Ravenclaw girl. You shouldn't be involved in these, you know, Slytherin schemes. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, then I'll just go ask uh, Harry Potter for Slytherin lessons. Yeah. Which I thought was funny because Harry Potter's not technically a Slytherin either. Um, but that, and she, she does say that the, when McGonagall asks her and she's, and then says, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have asked you, but um, like, oh, did it also, did the hat also try to p- place you in a Gryffindor? And that uh, Hermione tells her that the hat had said anything but Slytherin. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's nice. It it shows, it's kind of like the exact opposite conversation that it had with Harry then. You know, instead yeah. of like, hey, you're a danger at all this, it's like, nah, you're great. You know, you probably wouldn't fit in with all those Slytherin kids, but anywhere else you're going to kick ass. Mm-hmm. Um, which is nice. It, it shows, and that's what she says. She's, she says, so I have courage, Professor. And she's like, it's not about courage. It's about what's good for young girls. Um, <laughs> which, it's it's almost patronizing, but it's coming from the lovable and you know very well-intentioned Professor McGonagall. So it's... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's definitely setting up the points of like, you know, yes, we're not going to let this, the, you know, the fact that Hermione is a girl and Hermione certainly isn't going to let the fact that Hermione is a girl slow her down, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, then we move on to Aftermath, Draco Malfoy, which I thought this was... Another just, Aftermath. It, I think this, this one was faster, yep. yeah. But it, it was also funny, and then it had like this nice kind of serious, somber moment for a second, then it got kind of back to being funny. So <laughs> it opens up with uh, Harry and Draco are, are reading, and uh, Harry's just like fucking with them, and mm-hmm. he's like... Hermione Granger's a mud blood, <laughs> saying Harry Potter from a nearby desk, reading it afar, you know, and so... He's um, like, I know you're trying to distract that, me, stop it. Malfoy's working with a mud blood. <laughs> what will all your father's friends think? <laughs> um, and this is a complete side note, but I, I like those. They're reading in an unused classroom. There are a lot of unused classrooms <laughs> at Hogwarts. It's magic. No, I mean, did it just used to be more, like, was it built to be too big? Did there used to be more attendees? Well, there, there's, like, like, no, there's, like, rooms that don't, like, only exist, like, when there, there's the room of requirement. I, th- I I get the impression that there's, like, there are, like, random unused rooms that, like, don't exist except once you walk around a corner to them. So. Yeah, that, I mean, I guess that's that's probably it. They just, you know, if they want to go study, they just walk around until they find an empty spot. Mm-hmm. But, and they just well, I suppose you up. got, like, staircases moving around, like, the, the whole... Space and time are different in Hogwarts. Yeah, it's December in an odd-numbered year, and there's going to be you know extra rooms on this side of the castle, you know, at three p.m. Yeah, mm-hmm. etc. That makes sense. Um, so there was uh, Draco, kind of an intense in an, in, an, in an attempt to shut Harry Potter up. He's like, "So what did you wish for the first time?" And uh, <laughs> he looks up, and Draco look or Harry looks kind of sad and. Draco feels a twinge of malicious satisfaction. Um, then there's the line where it's like, well, you know, I, people asked, and I don't think Professor Krull wanted me to talk about it, and you can talk to me, you know, it's... I'm your friend. Uh, it, that's right. Feel, I'm your friend. Feel guilty. <laughs> uh, the, their dynamic is awesome. And Harry's first wish, apparently, was that I wish Professor Krull would teach battle magic again next year. <laughs> I like that. I think it's... Like they're just yeah. like being, he's being a smartass to him. No, I think that was his real wish. Really? No, I took it as him that he he said that because it was clearly insincere, and so it was just sort of a way of telling you of telling Draco, "Fuck you, I'm not going to tell you." 
Oh, okay. that's how I, I, could, I I can see that. Yeah. I honestly don't know if we get confirmation of that. I took it as as sincere and, and you know, Quirrell is as knowledgeable of the curse and the position as everyone else. And he's like, no, fuck this. Wish for something real. Uh, um, I see. No, I read it as like, because he's wishing for something that's such a like, well, A, it's like a suck ass thing to do, but it's also like wishing for something that is going to happen anyway, regardless of whether you wish for it. I wish Professor Crow would teach Battle Magic again next year. Well, I think because he, well, because he knows that he, uh, well, I think it might have been italicized because he was quoting yeah, the song quoting, or something. Quoting, but, yeah, so. uh, like, the 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 understanding from the beginning of the book uh, is that you know Quirrell's not going to be teacher next year, right? Like the the the, the curse and the defense position has been established to be real here too, right? Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think he's so, he, he was well, wishing yeah, that. I guess hey, I read it. I read it because he said Harry said with obvious artificial lightness. It wasn't really all that I interesting. Think it just, I wish Professor Quirrell. I see. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I, I thought know, that it was. I, I thought it was him trying to say like him being sad, and then like trying not to not to say it sadly or something. Could be both. Maybe he's just fucking with Draco. Mm-hmm. But I oh, yeah, no, I guess real. like like he was thinking what his real wish was, and that made him sad. And then he went into bullshit mode and said and and said that lie. I don't Interesting. know. Interesting. Do you have any guesses on what his real wish might have been? I don't. I. uh... No, I don't really. There's too, there's too too many things going on because it would it would like very much depend on what he where he thought Quirrell's actual motives were, and what he thought Quirrell could do. So yeah, there's a lot of moving parts there to that idea. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's fair. All right, so we move on to chapter thirty-six: status differentials. And I I liked how it opened up with Harry coming back to, you know, the rest of Earth. And he, like, I, <laughs> you helped me uh, find the, uh, oh, wait, where did I pull that little quote out? Oh, it was a little further down. That's right. So we'll get to that. But, yeah, it's where, uh, so Harry feels like this, like, incongruity when he comes returns to the muggle world like you know there's there's garbage there's the smell of gasoline and, and pollution and, and he's like man wizards could just you know use different spells to fix all that stuff and yeah i did like i mean i got i, I pinged off of a, a sentence in here that rubbed me the wrong way but I, but i did like the the effect because it felt very like oh if we're just sort of walking through if you're have stopped deciding how you want a plot to advance and you're just sort of like, okay, if the characters are at this point and this is what my characters are like, what would the world be doing right now? And this fall just sort of felt like this is what would be happening right now is if Harry went back to the real world, it would be a real bummer. Um, and it would be like culture shock of, you know, missing the world, the normal world he came from and then where he'd just been dumped into for like this intense magic experience. And then coming back in, it would be this, so it felt like very sort of convincing that all of these impressions of kind of the sights and smells and and the kind of drudgery of having to deal with muggle shit um, would be like a real kind of slap in the face and like disappointing yeah. be like oh fuck yeah and so the the quote that rubbed you the wrong way um... oh, ah yeah, yes it's uh, this Harry realized must be what it felt like to go from a first world country to a third world country that's just yeah, it just it just rubbed me as like oh you don't know anybody from a third world country <laughs> you don't know how totally obnoxious that sounded but not important it, that, that's possible i think it's like 
I, I, I don't know whether or not the author has been to third world countries or not. Um, I haven't. So I could just imagine going from a place with like a level up from where I'm at now, you know, with light whenever I want it and cool air whenever I want it to, you know, the next level, like air that's a great temperature, air that is always perfectly clean, um, efficient yeah, yeah, yeah. light, um, all that stuff to like, oh man, now I'm back down here with all the mundane. And again, like he paints it with like, you know, garbage yeah. and the smell of pollution and gasoline and uh, yeah, that'll play. And actually, and it worked really. It was it was sort of very convincing. It, it just felt very like real. Like, oh, this really would be what it would what it would feel like. Um, yeah, and but that said, third world countries are are pretty disparaging. And so to compare Oxford yeah. to or London or wherever they're at to a third world country only works if you're coming from a zero with world country mm-hmm. like Hogwarts. So um, there was this nice line where. And that was when Harry realized that the boy who lived only existed in magical Britain, and there wasn't any such person in Muggle London. Just a cute little 11-year-old going home for Christmas. And that's when he kind of gets emotional, and uh, he... We don't really hear him... I, the other thing would have been interesting would uh, to hear him, like, feelings, almost a sense of relief, like, oh, I can just go to being just that kid, and I don't have to constantly be dodging that, oh, I'm the boy who lived. See, I don't think that so. he can. I think that that's what I tried to hit at, and I, I used the, yeah. that's why, frankly, that's why you're here. I So my <laughs> note said, uh, um, like, he says, hello, mom, I'm back, and he hugged her amidst the noisy mechanical sounds and the smell of burned gasoline, and Harry started crying, because mm-hmm. he knew that, th- that nothing could go back, least of all him. And uh, yeah. it, so it reminded me of that, and this is me reading my, my uh, notes verbatim, Makes me think of the motif. Is that the right, right word for it? I'm not an English major. In Lord of the Rings, where there is no going back after your world is made larger. And I liked your reply. I think you were looking for the word thing. Makes <laughs> me think of the thing in Lord of the Rings where you like can't go back, man. You know? Yeah. Like, um, so yes, I, I appreciate you grounding me there as far as the <laughs> vocabulary. But but Harry is having the same thing that, you know, when all the hobbits go back to the Shire, there's there's no there's no such thing as just like going yeah. back home after this, right? So like he, he can come back and visit, but he can't yeah. not be who he's become, right? Yeah. That reminds me of like when you put it that way, it reminds me of what he said to Draco about like, well, now that you know, you can't unknow. Yeah. So. Yeah, oh, I was saying this again. This together. Is, yeah, this is another time. I think it's it's really interesting. I don't even know if we're, if there's any point that's going to be made, but I just, but the dynamic with him and his parents and the way he talks about his parents, I think is interesting because it's like very sincere, and I think we're definitely supposed to like his parents, but there's also this just this weird kind of like father son tension and like in a strange like his father's a little bit emotionally distant but also like not a bad guy it's sort of a very complicated i don't know complicated is the right right word for it but it's it's a not a not two-dimensional or or cliched portrayal of of how his parents are um but also like it's they're not they're they're good people and and i think and we definitely get reminded all the time that they treated him much better than uh than dursley's than the dursley universe did um, but yeah, I think it's interesting because it's not, it's not this perfect relationship, but it's also very clearly that they're good people. Um, and that his, that his emotions toward them, especially because Harry's has some issues with, uh, dealing with his emotions and expressing them. Um, that this is one of the ones where he's very, 
very kind of unambiguously positive towards his parents and then has these like you know these moments where he cries with his mom um so i think it's interesting because it's not uh it's not all like sweetness and light um yeah it's just interesting and it's similar like the same way um he'll get with mcgonagall where there's these yeah the, and they kind of stand out these these areas where he's able to be very where he's able to be an 11 year old kid um, so i think it's interesting yeah, no, I like that a lot, and it, it's a good point. Like the, the, this is a nice portrayal of like not the perfect ideal home with everything being wonderful and and puppies mm-hmm. and rainbows, but it's it's close, and he loves them, and like it's it's conveyed. Yeah. And you're right, like there's this there's this sort of like strain is almost the right word for it, but just like it's clear it's not perfect, but it's really really good. Yeah, um, and he's got you know he's got the whole like he's worried about offending that one of his parents will think he loves the other one more than the other and he's just got that kind of like awkward male affection thing with his father and then the way his father will sort of then like you know he pushes him off to his mother like all of that's super like awkward but also like super believable um like yeah, it feels that, like, yeah that that lands perfectly for yeah, me too yeah. um i i think that that's uh you know harry's dad would be i'm yeah. guessing 40 ish in 1990 so he's, he fits perfectly in that that time frame of like yeah. oh no i i'm stern you go hug your mother son um i i haven't had a dad in the 2000 well I, let me rephrase that i i haven't been a child in the in the you know 2000s where mm-hmm. like it's okay for men to like have feelings so i'm curious what that if that's a different thing now um but that certainly seems like it's fitting well with the time yeah. frame of where this was at so yeah and uh, it's, i mean that all like it, to me, it almost seems like this is just sort of like the authentic, like not necessarily like any specific relationship for Gutkowski, but like this is his sort of authentic experience of what, you know, these kind of family relationships are, are like. Not that he's necessarily like trying to portray his specifically, but it just feels like he's he's just trying to make a, a realistic one. Um, yeah, it feels genuine. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, like, so as far as this is a good example of that, of the sort of strain that you're hinting at that, like, so his dad's like, oh, so you make any revolutionary discoveries, discoveries yet? And of course, dad thought he was joking and, mm-hmm. you know, it hadn't hurt quite so much when his parents did believe in him back when no one else had either. Um, back when he hadn't known what it was like to be taken seriously by people like Headmaster Dumbledore and Professor Quirrell. And so that's, yeah, that's when he realizes that, you know, the boy who lived is a, is a magical Britain thing, not a... Yeah. Not a muggle London thing, so yeah. Um, I yeah, and like I, when, he, when he said that, I hadn't I hadn't thought before that 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 had been Harry's experience so far was that he had been missing being taken seriously, and that that's what he had been getting. I guess I had more the impression like he like his parents thought he was a genius too, and like he'd always been being treated like he was special in some way. Yeah, I think that, and that's that's articulated a bit later when he's talking with Hermione about it. But like his parents treated him as a genius and uh you know it encouraged him but he was always just a kid um so like they never they never took him seriously and then you have people like you know professor mcgonagall and and dumbledore and quarrel uh you know like oh man harry hold on yes this is serious business come talk to me in my office and oh my god you just revolutionized transfiguration no wizard ever before has done this Mm and um like not even just things that he's you know done, but like the fact that they would listen and take him seriously. You know, like he he got involved in a political debate in front of the uh, 
the whole school with with the enigmatic and powerful Professor Quirrell, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. and people wanted to hear what he had to say. Like so, he's he's a a serious figure in part of his life, but not in this part. Yeah, yeah, I so, thought that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. Um. Then there's this cute little bit where they go back to their house, and it's just like a few paragraphs, but it brings back that paragraph from the the first one of the book where. Uh, it you know every inch of wall space was covered by a bookcase and mm-hmm. it it describes the house again like the first time we saw it it's kind of like the first time Harry's seeing it um, like he's re seeing it for the first time yeah. right yeah and it's, and it's almost like the whole their um, I don't want to say it's snarkily like, like their their fascination with books was like their fetish for books um, but the, like it's like it's this like this emotional connection he has with his family and just with his house in general like this. Um, because I don't mean it's not, but they have this like very specific fascination with like books as a thing, like a book as a trophy of, oh, I, hey, I read this, um, that that's, that is a particular, uh, thing that he shares, especially with his dad, their whole thing about like going into it. You can't walk past a bookstore without going in. Like that's a way he <laughs> bonds with his family. And so this is like a, like that sort of is how we're, um, being walked through Harry's sense of like, oh, I'm coming home, the place where books are. Yeah, no, I like that a lot, and that that's that's a fun way to think about it. And it, you know, a quick tangent, but I moved. There was a period would have been in like I don't know five or six years ago. It doesn't I can't remember, but um, I moved three or four times within twelve months. Oof. And over that time, I gave away a lot of books because I had <laughs> just portion, and I didn't have a ton. Books are um, heavy too. And, well, that that's why I got rid of them because I'm like fuck this, man. I'll just I, I've read them already. I'm holding on to them because I've liked them, but I'm not going to read these again. Someone else will, I'll donate them or I'll give them to a friends and mm-hmm. stuff. But yeah, I had, I had boxes of books and I gave away a lot of them. And then it kind of occurred to me setting up my, you know, like my sparse bookshelf in my last, at the, at the place after I gave away a lot of books was like, you know, having a Kindle on the bookshelf doesn't like convey nearly like the amount mm-hmm. of like, uh, th- doesn't signal the same level of, of prestige or, or, uh, scholarship or literacy or whatever as having a giant book of overflowing bookshelves. Exactly. Um, the problem is yeah, that the, the, the book, the books as trophy thing, you have to have to like have some, some humility around it or just not think about it too hard. So you don't realize that's what you're doing. Like I have, I'm sitting in front of one, one bookshelf full of books and they are all very conspicuously and consciously like trophy books. Like these are the books I want you to know that I read. Um, and I like only give myself permission to do that because I am saying out loud that that's the bullshit trick I am doing. Um, but oh, yeah. otherwise it's such like a, it's book as affectation. Um, and especially for me, cause I like literally the, the first three Harry Potter books are, are three of the 10, I think books that I've ever read more than once in my life. Like other than that, I read a book and then I'm done. Cause I have, I will come back and read things a second time after I've read everything else once. <laughs> um, you got a long ways to go. Yeah. So like, yeah. So keeping books around seems like kind of, kind of silly for me at least, but yeah, I, I hear you. I um, mean, I could totally get it. Like, it, and at least like for this, like with, with how it's shown here, it's, it's kind of this, like, uh, it's more like an emotional connection with like, just with the books and just like, that's a, that is a, a thing Harry thinks of himself as being like, I am a person that reads books. I am the son of a man that reads books and that is who we are. Um, yeah. so in that way it's like, I, it sort of like has a nice emotional element to it. It does have a nice emotional element to it. I, uh, I won't, I won't, uh, keep belaboring that, but I really enjoy that. Yeah. And 
that was a, a cool thing to pick up on because um, I, I didn't I didn't quite articulate it that way myself so um, there's this nice little joke where uh, his dad apparently took up all the open space on his bookcases <laughs> so oh, yeah. like that's that's how his little section there ends mm-hmm. um, it talks about uh, well then there's a scene change and so well, it, actually let me beat I'm gonna beat that point up a little bit more though yeah because that is like the way that little, that one little line break section ends he's like uh, you used up all the open space on my bookcases. Um, like he's all pissed off about it. Like that again, like it just super rings true of like, at least for like the way my family works, like the being able to like have any kind of real emotional conversation with anybody else is super awkward. And like, Oh, you don't want to admit that you give a shit about anything. And so you have these like weird, like, like fake expressions of emotions around things that aren't really as important as you'd like to say they are. Um, and so that, that just like struck me. It was like very like, convincing way that you would do that like that is a a safer thing to say than oh it's really nice to be home i missed you guys is oh you used up all the bookshelves yeah no I but really it's a like way that. to like connect connection. with people I can, still i can think of ways to do that uh, ways that my my family does that too you know like i uh when i visit my parents i'm gonna stay the night my mom they have a spare room that she'll make up and she'll you know she'll wash the bedding she'll put it all together and I'm like, I could just crash on the couch. And they're like, no, no, this, you know, you have a room. This would be, you know, a place for you to stay. And it, like, it's it's a nice uh, um, expression of that sort of sentiment. Yeah. And then, you know, once in a while, um, you know, my, this isn't speaking ill of my dad. It's just how he is. He He's not an emotionally expressive person that much. And so, you know, once in a while, I'll come, I'll come out uh, if I'm visiting and, uh, you know, he'll be, cleaning the windshield or cleaning the windows of my car or something you know just like doing mm-hmm. some small little thing like hey yeah i saw that i and i i cleaned your the the headlamp things on your uh on your car look like they were getting kind of uh, gruffed up i've got this buffer here it's no big deal and uh it's just you know he's not going to say hey it was really great just for you to stop by I sure love seeing you son and he'll say that too but it's yeah. you know it's, it's yeah, different it's, like, it's, it's more expressed to those yeah. little sentiments and that stuff's yeah. awkward and uncomfortable and... Yeah. yeah uh but i like it it's great yeah. i Good, good grab picking that up. Um, uh, so I liked, uh, there's this brief thing where he talks about how he went Christmas shopping with his, for his parents. It sounds like at Diagon Alley. Yeah. Um, and Grid and Gods had exchanged uh, galleons for paper money. Um, oh, wait, no. He bought stuff with Muggle money on the 23rd. But before that, he had gotten paper money from uh, Grid and Gods. And there's this like little thing of him uh, saying that he would have liked to, you know, um, uh, split up the money that he had self-stolen into like international index funds and 40% Berkshire Hathaway, which mm-hmm. I'm assuming is some stock thing that rich people will understand. Um, and then uh, for, for since he didn't have time to do that, for the moment, Harry had diversified his assets a little further by sneaking out at night, invisible and time-turned, and burying 100 golden galleons in the backyard because he had always wanted to do that anyway. <laughs> and I think my Where do we do the math? Is that, that like, was, tw- is that like 20 grand, I think? What did, what did we say? Like uh, a galleon's two hundred fifty bucks or something. I think a galleon is twenty five. Oh. So ballpark. Uh, oh, right. I mean just, that's that's just like drug money. That's not like you know. Is that a mere twenty five hundred bucks? That doesn't sound yeah, right. Maybe it, no. That actually sounds right. Hundred galleons was what he borrowed from Draco, which we concluded was way too much spending money. Uh, I don't feel like going back and checking my math, but yeah, you know, I mean, that's enough to buy. That's like what half of my cars have cost. So, especially nineteen ninety one dollars. Um, and it's, then you, it's you just have, kind of fun that he, then you he's have pirate got, treasure got in your backyard. So exactly. Cool. How cool is that, right? Um, then there's this fun little moment where uh, 
his his you know he's he's talking with his dad like kind of like in like i'm sure there's a word for it but it's like it's not at the time the conversation's happening it's more just like kind of like throw away this happened Mm -hmm. and um it was like on the 24th they had spent you know uh talking about harry's books and asking and answering some questions and um yes dad i checked what happened in hermione changed the pronunciation uh (laughs) yes that was the first experiment i did and then Harry's dad looks up from magical droughts and potions with an expression of bewildered disgust and asks whether it all made sense if you're a wizard, and which Harry had answered no. no. <laughs> whereupon, whereupon his father had declared that magic was unscientific. Um, and I like that because Harry was like, you can't just point to like part of reality and say mm-hmm. it's unscientific. Uh, you know, dad, you're con- is, his dad was conflating the conflict between his intuitions and the universe that meant meant that the universe had a problem and it so it it's just a little difference in their perspective but it is kind of fun that like you know here's this oxford professor as we imagine him reading this book with like his face growing in disgust he's like this fuck could mean anything to you and he's like no it means fuck all to us too and he's like all right screw all this it's, it's garbage right <laughs> this did right this made me think of back to my, my core conspiracy theory about all this that this is all some fake universe that that like this idea that he's got like oh that's not scientific like that's going to be how Harry like arrives at figuring out whatever true is is that no matter how whacked the rules that you're operating under are if like you just this scientific method will get you to eventually what's true you know no matter no matter how weird it is um, and I think it. I think that's like uh, I I will 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 put your prediction in the in your in the back pocket there but. Um, I think uh, like that's the history of discovering the universe, right? Like everything is an incomprehensible mystery yeah. until you understand it, and so it's like you could look at fire, or you could look at um, this might have been in, in methods of rationality, or maybe just on less wrong, but it was uh, what Lord Kelvin, I think, the guy from the Kelvin scale, and he did other mm-hmm. cool science stuff, but he had said that the the understanding of how like human biology worked, like that I can look at my hand and open and close my fist by thinking about it. Like, that is forever, infinitely beyond the scope of science, I think was the quote. Mm-hmm. Not just a little beyond, but infinitely beyond. Just and fundamentally, it's like, yeah. Right. And it's like, no, that turns out that's a very understandable thing. And now we mm-hmm. get it. But even to you, a really smart guy at the time, it was it was a something that you so mysterious to you that you declared it impossible to understand. Uh, yeah. That, that is the history of science in a nutshell. Like, everything's impossible to understand yeah. if you think it is until it is, right? My thought, and it's, and again, like, what I thought it would, I don't know if I'm reading too much significance that he that he brought up Phil Dick once, but that the idea is that even if your reality is a lie, that the scientific method can find that out for you too. Um, yes, so I agree, idea. and yeah. I don't. What uh, was what's the Phil Dick connection? Uh, well, that's the, that's your reality is a lie is the basis for like half of the stuff he writes, because <laughs> so, uh, he wrote uh, Total Recall. Um, oh, he's nice. done, yeah, he's done it, but yeah, and then uh, and then the Blade Runner. I saw the they, movie adaptation of that, and it was great. Yeah, Blade Runner, the robots don't know that they are robots. Um, you know, I still haven't seen Blade Runner. The Man in the High Castle. Their whole universe is an alternate universe. Sounds dope. Oh, you know, uh, what's the um, Legend of Zelda: Link's Awakening? I have not read that book. Oh, <laughs> yes. Well, it's it's a it's a classic. Of, of scholarly literature uh, that was released in late in the late 90s on the uh, Game Boy Advance. I recommend you check it out. Um, 
they just remade it for the Switch, and it's just, like, adorably, like, they all look like, uh, what do you call those little bobbleheads? There's, like, that brand. Uh, uh bobbleheads. Well, the, the ones that, like, it's, I don't know, the cartoony proportions the, and stuff. Oh, uh, I think I know. Not anyway, wobbles, but, in the, yeah. Yeah, whatever. The, they all look like adorable little bobbleheads. Um, that said, it took, like, four hours to beat and it was not worth 60 bucks so mm-hmm. if you can find a copy for 15 dollars, i recommend grabbing it for the nintendo switch but don't buy it at full price unless you just really really love it so i'd have to buy anyway. a nintendo switch oh man it's worth buying just this for episode brought to you by nintendo let's turn this into a thing where we keep having like fake sponsors i'm totally into that maybe eventually this like somebody will send us some free shit for for no good reason that's exactly what i was gonna say <laughs> to me. we keep saying it enough somebody will send us a free nintendo switch <laughs> that's right. um so, uh, anyway, Harry gives them a nice medical kit. And there's actually, I wasn't going to bring this up, but it was uh, just something that jumped out at me. Um, so Harry says that much of the potions in there wouldn't work on Dad, which is interesting. Yeah, what did that mean? I didn't get, I didn't I understand what it meant. I guess it means that it works on magic people. But I don't know, A, how Harry knows that. Maybe the yeah. person at the shop told him. Um but then, more importantly, why the hell would that matter? Like, if yeah. it's a magic potion that, like, when Neville fell off the broom, he reached for that syringe of liquid fire that was going to, like, keep his brain oxygenated if he had broken mm-hmm. his neck. Like, if it works by magic, does magic not work on muggles? you got um, to believe. Well, you but, I mean, his mom, it, it would presumably work on a squib that didn't know they were magic, right? Yeah. I don't oh, know. that's true. Cause it, yeah, because that means he had to have gotten... I don't except that... It, uh, I don't know. Because he's not genetically related to his father. He is genetically related to his to his mother. To his non-magical mother, but she carries yeah. the allele. Yeah, right? yeah. Both but well, he's, um, um, well, no, not, no, I mean um, Petunia and James. He is genetically related to his adopted mother because she's his biological aunt, right? I think right. So, so yeah. presumably she she carries yeah. one half of the... Uh, um, yeah. The... Uh, I guess she carries one allele for the uh, she might not for, for magic. How's, how does that math work out? If his mother, she wouldn't necessarily have one. It's possible that no. she would not because she's just the sister. So his mother um, could have had his mother could have had one and only one, and um, his aunt could have not had one. You're right. At the very least, his mom's a or his uh, what Petunia is a squib. Yeah. Or no, not necessarily a squib, but just like a carrier. Because neither... Oh, no, wait. Cause, no, but both of his parents were actually wizards, weren't they? Yeah, both of Harry's parents were. Okay, so oh, so that means his sister at least has one. Never mind. I thought, I thought his mom was... Um, I forgot that uh, his mom actually was a full wizard. I was thinking... Yeah, I had in my head that she was only half. But never mind. No, her, his mom was a whole wizard, but uh, Muggleborn was the Muggleborn. thing. That's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, let's see. The... The crux of this chapter is them at the Granger's house because uh, they're going to have Christmas Eve dinner over there for, um, I don't know, for fun. Just like, fun. Well, no, because they keep playing it up because, uh, because they think that Harry and uh, Hermione, are, which like that whole creepy, like, oh, these little kids are going to get married one day thing. Yeah, I wasn't, I didn't want to, like... I, so when I said for fun, like I get what the what the book said, and, I, and mm-hmm. I'm following that, but like it's I I don't I hope that the parents aren't like oh man let's go have dinner with our future in laws and it's like no like <laughs> let's go have let's go have dinner with like the one friend you made at school that <laughs> happens the only to live in town friend that our socially stunted child was able to not drive away right yeah luckily <laughs> Harry Harry made like three friends at school and one of them lives nearby so let's one go visit there for Christmas <laughs> yeah 
I thought those. I mean, I thought those was cool because we didn't like. And they were, like these are like, these are completely. Maybe uh, her family was mentioned in the real books as like humans that exist, but I like they were like actually getting to see them here as characters. And and I, I don't remember that if we ever knew that Hermione's parents were dentists. Um, but I like they were like getting like this is a whole part of the universe that we're getting to see that we didn't get to see in the originals yeah they're getting they're getting fleshed out you yeah. know okay we'll get back to the book in a second but i gotta complain about one thing about hermione's parents in the books Sorry. at the beginning of book seven she tells harry and her harry and ron that she obliviated her parents uh she obliviated her the memory of her from her parents so that they couldn't be used as hostages to get mm-hmm. her or something that is complete bullshit and makes no fucking sense to me like whether or not my parents believe I existed or not doesn't mean that you still can't take them hostage from me. That's true. Right? Uh, yeah, I guess like, I'll true. still fight to protect them. I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Like, what it would mean is that you can't torture them for, for information about me. But, like, what are they going to say anyway? Like, oh, she apparated away. I don't know where she went. Torture me all you want. Or, what daughter? Like, it doesn't matter what, what answer they give the torturers. Like, I'm still going to be concerned enough to try and help them. So, like, the whole thing of, like, oh, yeah, they don't remember me anymore. It was, like, this nice, sad moment. But it was, like... Uh, that, that wouldn't that do wouldn't any good. Really that would help. That would that wouldn't help anything. All <laughs> it does is make for this sad beat. Um, anyway, now back to your regularly scheduled program, uh, <laughs> where where um, they they get there, they open the door, and uh, Doctor Leo Granger opens it, and he's he's like, oh yes, uh, the toys are downstairs in the basement. I'm sure Herm will be down shortly. Herm. Um, Herm. And then Harry looks at him for a moment, and we're not quite sure what is going to happen. Then he's like, toys? I love toys. In a bright, high-pitched voice with his eyes wide. That was the point. And I had I tried to, to listen to this chapter in the audiobook, and when they when they did that, I'm like, I can't, I can't do these voices. And not that it was, I'm like, I know these people, and I know I can't, I can't listen to this book. Oh, so I, I, you know, I, I completely understand. There are some down the road where I think I'll make you listen, because uh, some, I think I mentioned this before, but there are chapters later on where um, listeners made music to accompany it made sound effects and that sort of stuff and it was awesome well actually um, it totally is really well done like especially because because uh, i'll keep thinking back my because he'll change voices and i'll do all this stuff i'm like oh, i was like pain in the ass editing that went into this and so it was yeah, like, i think it was, I, I, I think it was I like 15 hours an episode that he would spend on average especially yeah. the ones with lots of characters um because, yeah, then it is, a lot of it was, you know, some people he knew in real life, but most of the people down the road, he was just getting sound bites over the web. So they would come in varying qualities that would require as much editing as he could do to mm-hmm. make them sound uh, consistent quality with the rest of the story. And then, yeah, a lot of copy and pasting and perfect timing. And, um, yeah, this was truly a, a labor yeah. of love that he put a lot of time into. So shout out to Ineos Brodsky's uh, audiobook version of this. Nice. That said, yeah, he does he does put on the, like, affectation of like uh-huh. a young little boy like toys i love, I love toys to- and 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 uh it is i i i when i say that both times i sat up in my seat and made my eyes wide and put on a smile and i i have to imagine that Inyash probably did two or three takes on that to like all right how do i sound like a little boy <laughs> <laughs> i my uh i was listening in the i was listening to this part i was listening in the car with my daughter and she was listening to it and she's like i hate how books like just stereotype 11 year olds because <laughs> she, Your she didn't daughter know sounds enough. so she fucking cool. She didn't know enough of the back. <laughs> didn't know enough of the background of it to know that I'm like, and I think I cussed in front of her because I do that in front of my kid. I'm like, I think he's bullshitting. I don't know. Let's listen. <laughs> <laughs> Your daughter sounds awesome. Yeah, I don't cool. think I knew the word stereotype at eleven. 
There you go. Well, it's because, no, you know, she's the kind of super genius that knows how to, you know, falsify her assumptions. No, I mean, yeah, that's that's the other big big data point. I, I'm serious. You, you've yeah. got you've got a young Hermione Granger on your hands. Um, anyway, then it does like a scene change to uh, the mom's point of view, and it's kind of fun because like there's like this background thing in her head where she's talking about how she read books that she got from uh, yeah. you know she's bookshopping with Hermione and she'd read Hermione's letters that described the boy who lived, um, and she was like, you know, this is like. Uh, she, she's like basically wondering if he's dangerous and like this was the guy who destroyed the dark lord the one that probably killed my 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 birth mom now to think about it because uh she so the apparently what roberta hermione's roberta mom Granger, yeah. yeah she's like okay yeah so the dark lord my mom probably died during the whole war and this kid killed the guy behind that okay that's that's really weird yeah. um there's grindelwald i like it like uh, this is stuff this is like backstory in the Harry Potter universe that didn't exist at the time, like in the the time of the plot when that this is a alternate universe for the whole Grindelwald backstory didn't even exist yet. <laughs> I mean, it was after the fact invented. That's why I like we can sort of like tie that stuff in now. Yeah, it's it's fun. Um, oh, you're right. And her mom would have died at Grindelwald's war. Yeah, yeah, and she, yeah. And she, I think she mentions Grindelwald specifically. But yeah, so I like yeah. like we're tying it back into that history. But like that history, Rowling hadn't invented that history yet. But, yeah, luckily this gets to take it with the scope yeah, of the whole thing. Yeah, the whole so, thing. Um, I there's also like this kind of fun thing that Harry does when he like, and he's clearly just like, I think he's doing this self-aware. Um, where he's like, well met on the fairest of evening, evenings, Miss Granger. I present to you my father, Professor Michael Varys Evans, and my mother, Mr. Mrs. Petunia Evans Varys. And, and then he looks back, Mom, Dad, this is Hermione. She's really smart. <laughs> <laughs> I am afraid, Miss Granger, that you and I have been exiled to the labyrinthian recesses of the basement. Let us leave them to their adult conversations, which have no doubt soar far above our own childish intellects, and resume our own ongoing discussion of the implications of Humean projectivism for transfiguration. Humean. <laughs> Harry was salty this evening. Yeah, it was. It's like, but I, I my read of it, because we're not in his head, but like, I'm getting that he's just doing this, like, he's just being know, funny yeah, yeah. on purpose, but he, he, he is dropping salt everywhere that he yeah. goes. Seems I wonder, like, I don't know how much <laughs> it's like altered now that, uh, like my recollection of his altered based on having read the whole thing, because he gets like later in this chapter, he gets like so pissed off about um, on behalf of Hermione, but just sort of in general of, you know, adults not taking the kids seriously. That then I see this, like, this is like, yes, he's having fun, but it's also like a, hey, fuck you, you guys. Yeah. So yeah. He's planted the seeds for that. I guess. Yeah. yeah he, he picks up all the salt that he's left around the house all day. Mm-hmm. and just throws it all at him <laughs> later on. So um, then, uh, there's this kind of fun little like throwaway thing where um, I'll just read it. So uh, Roberta had been increasingly increasingly apprehensive about giving her daughter over to witchcraft, especially after she'd read the books, put the dates together, and realized that her magical yeah. mother had probably been killed at the height of Grindelwald's terror, not died giving birth to her, as her father had always claimed. But Professor McGonagall had made other visits after her first trip to, quote, see how Miss Granger is doing, unquote. Mm-hmm. And Roberta couldn't help but think that if Hermione said her parents were being troublesome about her witching career that something would be done to fix them and fix them it's it seems like she has a lot of apprehension about all this business which is kind yeah, of fun yeah uh, i did like that made me think that i liked the idea of that hermione was somebody that mcgonagall had been watching over for her whole life that they that she was somebody that was super important to them too 
and it's just nice like 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 and it's McGonagall like oh McGonagall was taking her very sort of like strict but very caring attention for all those years interesting I didn't get the the years implication so much there as like she showed up when she got her letter and then like stopped by a few more times over that summer is sort of how uh, I read it oh is that um, I guess maybe I because it was but Professor McGonagall had made other visits after her first trip yeah I guess maybe I thought I, I was seeing first trip as maybe it's just because it was because that was right after her talking about many years ago with Grindelwald's terror and yeah, everything. But... I, I sort of get the impression that like nobody knows that Muggleborns exist until they get their letter or something. I'm not sure mm. how that's supposed to work. No, but... I'm changing them my head. I like I like my version better. I don't care if it's not true. That works. I'm <laughs> I'm rejecting the reality and substituting my <laughs> own. McGonagall has been watching over Hermione her whole life, like she's some kind of like fairy godmother. That works. There you go. I just like to imagine McGonagall doing that for like a lot of like smart young kids. Mm-hmm. She's got a very she's got very busy summers. Uh, yes. <laughs> And uh, then it switches to dinner where Harry's like trying to like keep his cool. And um, apparently, apparently Hermione had just sent back like gentle letters like, oh, yeah, school's been going great. I'm doing well, whatever. And uh, Harry had been sending back all kinds of cool stuff to his parents about like what, you know, is going on, like that Hermione had been the general of an army in their actual <laughs> activities. Um, and this this alarms uh, especially Hermione's mom. So I was like playing through my head, like how Hermione would try to like, you know, backpedal on that and be like, Oh yeah, we, you know, we were just playing like, like little war games and, and pretendy and we would pretend to shoot each other. And yeah, it's like, like Nerf guns, was, mom. Yeah. it's fine. Yeah. It's just like lights that would come out of our wands. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, lots of, lots of lights do lots of weird things coming out of these sticks, but trust me, we're all being safe. Um, it's, uh, I, it, it's it's fun because it kind of with that back tone of knowing that her mom's already super nervous about this then you hear about you know like it says that Hermione's mother looked alarmed and it's like oh shit all the stuff I'm worried about is real mm-hmm. um, so then uh, Harry and then we also I think we also then like Harry's father is like oh well I can't imagine the kids would do anything if it was actually dangerous it's this sort of like very dismissive like like not taking it seriously Right, with firm professorial authority, who says that. Yeah, and, and this again, I think, is super interesting because that's like not a flattering, you know, portrayal of his father. But it's also, but like, but he's still a good. Like, we we're still, we still like him, but there's, he's also very much like not a perfect human. Yeah, we like him, but he has shortcomings, yeah. and it's it seems like he he assumes that Hogwarts is just like Muggle World, where it's like, no, of course they're kids; they're not going to put kids mm-hmm. in danger. And it's like you realize we play murder ball like as a sport, right? Um, <laughs> like our, the job is like to fly as fast as you can on these things. I'm not sure how fast they go, but like 40, 50 miles an hour, and hit each other with sticks and throw these you know heavy balls that he, to try and knock each other off, and like that's just like our our weekly sport. You know, mm-hmm. you see what we get. You know the I guess the, I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring the point that yes, there's a disconnect. Harry's dad mm-hmm. sees it like, oh yeah, they're kids. Of course they're gonna be treated like kids there, and they're definitely, they're definitely, definitely not. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, then like there's Dr. Leo Granger had asked at one point whether that nice teacher who seemed to like Hermione, Professor McGonagall, was awarding her lots of points in school, and Hermione had said yes with apparently genuine smile. And Harry had managed with some effort to stop himself icily pointing out that Professor McGonagall would never show favoritism to any Hogwarts student, and that Hermione was getting lots of points because she had earned every single one. Um, he's, he, so, like, it's it's building up to what's bugging Harry. And yeah. I'll, I'll let you take it over from here. Yeah, he kind of... Um, 
I, it, I wasn't sure how to take it the first time through because it's like Harry like gets uh, he starts getting really pissed off at kind of all of the of the adults for not taking them seriously. But then uh, like on behalf of Hermione, um, that any kind of like what we had talked about, sort of talking about how almost su- superhuman she is and and how she does in school. Um, so he talks about that, that, like, oh, no, Hermione's gotten all these points because she really deserves it. Um, and then he kind of, he gets mad at um, at Hermione's dad for further kind of just, not belittling, but being sort of dismissive and like, oh, yeah, she's very smart. She gets good grades. Um, what did he say? He's like, you don't have the tiniest idea, said Harry, the ice now leaking into his voice. You think she reads a lot of books and it's cute, right? You see a perfect report card and you think it's good that she's doing well in class. Your daughter is the most talented witch of her generation and the brightest star of Hogwarts. And someday, Dr. Doctor and Dr. Granger, the fact that you or her parents will be the only reason that history remembers you. Um, nice burn. Yeah, I know. I, that was interesting. Like, the first time I read it, I'm like, it, it was, I, I, yeah, like, I'm, in my repeated uh, uncertainty around like how does this stuff play and how how are we intended to take it uh, when I was again not sure but now going through it a, a second time I see like we're supposed to see that this is Harry coming a little unhinged um, that that yes we're supposed to we're supposed to completely agree with him and and agree with him not only like yes Hermione's super smart and yes she shouldn't be she should be you know taken on those terms um, but that also like the, especially I think, um, in reading in this second reading of seeing like the grandiose way he puts things that like history will remember her and the history will only, uh, what does he say? It is entirely possible that in a thousand years, the fact that Hermione Granger's parents were dentists will be the only reason anyone remembers dentistry. Um, and I, th- that had been kind of what had been building up for the whole evening is like Harry's huge, like intellectual chip on his shoulder. Um, and, and I think we're supposed to take this boat, like we're both supposed to agree with him on content and also go like, dude, chill. Um, because it's, he's, you know, turning up the volume on it so loud and putting it in these like huge grandiose terms. Uh, and that like, oh, that Hermione Granger is going to rule the universe one day <laughs> and that how he himself thinks, thinks that of himself as well. Um, that, so I think we are supposed to see that as like, these are among the things that are, uh, as Harry has put it, there's something wrong with Harry Potter. Um, the, these are among those things. Um, so is it like an interesting combination? Cause I think we, we are supposed to see this as like, okay, there's something off about this kid. Um, but while also agreeing almost entirely on the content, I'm like, yes, Her- yes, Hermione is that awesome. Uh, and yes, the parents don't understand that. Um, so it's kind of both at the same time. Yeah, I get the impression that he's gone a bit dark side because yeah. it says that the ice was leaking into his voice. Yeah. And I kind of, I so I associate that coldness with that. But like some of the things that lean up to it are like, um, he's like, you know, oh no, Dad, I'm not bothered losing to her. You know, did I mention yeah. that she memorized all her school books before the first day of class? And yes, I tested it. And then Professor Varys Evans was like, ah, is that usual for her? And her mom's like, oh, yeah, she's always memorizing things. She knows every recipe in all my cookbooks by heart. I miss her every time I make dinner. And, like, it's a cute little thing to say, but it's mm-hmm. like you don't realize how remarkable that is. And yeah. they don't seem to realize, like, they, they don't seem to know and appreciate and, and, like you said, or like I said, realize just, like, 
she's incredibly talented. She's yeah. not just like, oh, isn't it cute that she memorized this stuff? Um, like, yeah, I think, the I think, thought I had in the back of my because she used that as the specific example of like having the recipe books memorized was that it made me think like, no, that's like that's not like genius stuff. That's like savantism kind of like you know, memorizing book stuff. But then it made me think like, oh, but no, she's not just that. She's, she's also everything else. Yeah. I think but, Harry uh, sees, sees Hermione as like, you know, the next generation's Dumbledore, if not yeah. more. And then of course he sees himself as like, you know, the wizarding world's first Iron Man. Mm. Um, <laughs> but like, so he's like, no, she's, she's incredible. And like, you guys just think it's cute that she memorizes stuff and gets good grades. Like, mm-hmm. I like that line about, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that in a thousand years, the fact that Hermione Granger's parents were dentists will be the only reason anyone remembers mm-hmm. That's dentistry. Good, that's a good line. Yeah. And it's like, you guys think what you do is so cool. No one's going to remember what that shit is in a thousand years. They're going to remember that they might read about it in the books because Hermione Granger will be in those books. And mm-hmm. there'll be the, there'll be a throwaway line that dentistry was a thing because that's what her parents did. Um, it's... Uh, uh, I, I liked it. I thought it played well. And then her, there's this really nice sentimental thing. Uh, so her, at that point, so he's shouting at that point because Hermione was, had like walked up and like grabbed him by the shirt collar and was dragging him away from the mm-hmm. table. And so in the audiobook, if you, if you'd made it that far, uh, like Inyash was like walking away from the mic and shouting it as he got further, oh, further yeah, away. Yeah. Actually, I and it, it, it landed pretty well. Um, so then I liked the, what you pulled out here with uh, um, yeah, Hermione's reaction, reaction to it. Yeah, let me let me read because I thought, and I, I was like really glad to see this because it like it like let let me know like okay, this is the way we should kind of digest this whole this whole episode. So she's she's yanked him back down into the basement to be like, dude, chill the fuck out. Um, and Harry's like Harry's too, getting all pissed off at her but on her behalf like can you believe how they fucking treat you this is bullshit maybe not in those exact words um but so and so harry's like ranting and then hermione interrupts him she's like hermione held up a single finger and harry waited watching her search for words it took her a while before she said harry professor mcgonagall and professor flitwick like me because i'm the most talented witch of my generation and the brightest star of hogwarts which she's actually like paraphrasing harry saying that's it's not not as uh arrogant as that sounds um, and it's and, not arrogant because it's yeah, true. Yeah. And I mean, that's, it, 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 just because it's true doesn't mean it's okay to say it. Um, anyway, and mom and dad. Well, well, I'll just I'll just leave that on yeah, the side. <laughs> yeah, we got that whole your whole like you're you're regurgitating other people's thoughts about false humility. Oh, um, please. Okay, snap. I'm going to interrupt at this point. I I had this conversation <laughs> with my wife just last night. She she's a geriatric or she's a hospice social worker. She she builds relationships with and helps people who are going to die. And that is a remarkable thing. And I think that it's easy for her to forget in the humdrum of her day-to-day job. And it's not humdrum at all, but like, like to her, it's just her work, but she doesn't, she, I think this is what I was telling her. It was like, I, I, I think that it's easy for you to be like, Oh yeah, this is my day. And I'm like, I don't think you realize how fucking insanely awesome of a day that is. Like there are, there are very few people who could do that. Um, it's, it's, remarkable and you know that doesn't mean that you know she should jump on a high horse and shout down at everybody be like i'm super remarkable but it is okay for her to say yeah it is a hard job and you know i i do do that or something right like i well yeah those those are different things well i mean that's always a hard job and what i do is really meaningful and i'm really glad i do it and i'm really proud of what i do are all not at all the same thing as wow i'm really fucking amazing and you should be impressed with me (laughs) 
I okay, that's fine. All right, yeah. well, we'll and that's it. what like they all to the and to the extent that they're different. Like that's the only difference. Like it's totally fine to be proud of something and even and and, and more important, like being honest about like how good good at you are with something or whatever. Like not lying about the facts is one thing, but like making sure everybody knows how high your IQ is is kind of irrelevant. And that's that's where it crosses into dick line. Anyway. Before you so rudely interrupted me. No, no. Anyway, uh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, Professor McGonagall and Professor Flitwick like me because I'm the most talented witch of my generation and the brightest star of Hogwarts. And mom and dad don't know that, and you'll never be able to tell them, but they love me anyway. Which means that everything is just the way it should be at Hogwarts and at home. And since they're my parents, Mr. Potter, you don't get to argue. Um, I like that because and a good part of what makes Hermione so awesome is that like, she is both, like, you know just as smart as Harry, but she's also got like her head on straight. Um, and I like, like this was a very like clear uh, demonstration of, what did I put it? Like emotional proportionality um, to it. And like a maturity around it. She's like, well, yes, I'm like, you are not mistaken to think I am as good as you are saying I am. But um, it also doesn't mean that everybody has to, you know, be <laughs> like, it is appropriate for me to be treated as a child because I am a child. Um, and like, it's sort of like nice to like be returned to sanity, like not wondering like, oh, is it normal for Harry? Like, is this reaction of Harry's, oh, you know, normal? Because, well, he is really smart. So maybe he should be getting all offended that, you know, nobody's taking him seriously when he uses words like human. Um, and to like go back and be like, oh, no, wait, this is how like a sane person responds to this is like, well, no, my parents love me. My, par my parents are good people and my parents are not treating me weirdly. They're just treating me like I am a kid because I am a kid. Um, yeah, and it was and it was nice to see like, oh, like to see Hermione being very like together um, and that it wasn't in any way like in spite of being super smart. Um, so I like that. And it was sort of like, let us know, like sort of like tied up, you know, the, what's the, the point of view we should be having on everything we've seen out of Harry be like, no, okay, this is sort of like baseline normal. This is how a normal person sees all this. So then we can see like, okay, there is something not right about the way Harry's dealing with this stuff. I will, <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I agree with 95% of what you said, so I'll focus on that. Um, like, I, I totally agree. I think Hermione, having her... She, she's ma emotionally mature enough to be okay with the disparity of her treatment at school and her treatment at home. And she doesn't demand that everyone in her life acknowledge how genius she is. Um, like, I can... It, what's great is I can totally see her point, and I can see Harry's, like, where... Because he's like, but you are, and you should. Like, you know, if they, if they actually took you seriously, they might, you know, help encourage you better or something. They wouldn't give you cookbooks to memorize right like if you, i could just imagine hermione being bored at, at seven years old and it's like you know mom dad i've read every book in the house what can i do and it's like uh fine uh memorize my cookbooks for me if you like memorizing some mm -hmm. stuff so much and like you know so he's like man if they've given you like real shit to read or treated you like you know not a child then you might be you know imagine how much more uh you could have been nourished at home with this but that's not where Hermione's coming from. But she's like, no, like they're my parents. It's fine. Like this is my life, and you don't get to argue. And well, Anna, uh, I think like the impression is that like, but they did. Like she totally like Harry can still sort of like. There's an infinite supply of Harry being able to be indignant about, you know, 
well, but they could have done more or whatever. They didn't treat her like she was dumb and they didn't deny her exposure to things. <clears throat> and yeah, you could always do more, but they did take her seriously, but they also aren't like, you know, having these weirdly grandiose ideas of the genius levels of their child. That actually, that makes a really good point because you're right. When he, so when Harry's walking around at the beginning of the book, when we are still trying to figure out whether or not we like him, um, he's trying to identify anyone who can name the six quarks and she can. Yeah. So she's clearly read some science books. Yeah. So they gave her some high level stuff to read that wasn't related to dentistry, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. And like, well, and I think especially because the way Harry's been like ranting um, at this dinner is like, he's, he's a little bit unhinged and it's, it's not because as you described, like how do they actually treat her? He's really almost just kind of getting bent out of shape that they haven't been sufficiently grandiose about it. Um, but they've been, t- it's, they haven't been neglectful at all. And they've been, you know, like proactively exposing, exposing her to things. Um, so, so there's like, and the, at the levels of like grandiosity, Harry talks about it, like nobody would, th- th- there's no amount of treatment that would have been considered sufficient. Harry doesn't even think he was treated sufficiently, even with his private tutors. And yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. Um, I will, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree uh, totally enough to, to keep moving on. Like there's, you know, the, 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 the now it's down to 1% of stuff that we disagree on. There's no point in, in belaboring that. I think that I, it is literally 99%. I'm super on board. I totally agree. I think that, <laughs> and what I also like about it is that, um, it, it shows that the author is capable of understanding both perspectives and that, you know, we're not necessarily endorsing that everything that Harry's, yeah, yeah, yeah. every position Harry has is the one that we are intended to like. Yeah. Um, well, that, then, and that, I think that was like, the, at least for me, it was like the big, like, okay, this is a moment, like this very clearly came from somebody who entertains that whole worldview as a thing. Um, so it's like, oh, okay. So then any other weird nutty thing Harry does and be like, okay, that's at least, you know, that's not, we are not of that mindset with Harry. We are looking at that mindset in Harry. Right. No, I like that. Um, and then Hermione gives him a little kiss on the cheek. And whereby Harry reacts perfectly appropriately for the character that he is for himself. And he says, hey, no kissing. And that's all like his parents can hear from upstairs. And so uh, the parents kind of freak out and or the moms freak out and run down to go, you know, go get him. And then uh, Hermione says in an icy tone that she was never going to kiss Harry again. And Harry was saying in an outraged voice that the sun would burn down to cold, dead cinder before he ever let her get close enough to try. And... Uh, then they sit down and finish their dinner. So, um, I'm, I think luckily the next two chapters are super short. I didn't realize we talked so long about the first two, but I'm super into it. So there's lots of, lots to dig into there. Um, the next chapter was probably a 90 second read. So it'll go by pretty quick. It's a date night with Harry and Quarrel. It's an interlude chapter. All right, Brian said it first, not me. (laughs) No, it's Um, some weird sort of like true blood, like floating vampire outside your window kind of thing. Yeah, it, like it's kind of funny. And, yeah. There, there was there was a couple little moments in this I really loved. Like, so it's this is chapter seven interlude, uh, crossing the boundary, um, which I'm guessing is the uh, boundary from not Christmas to Christmas, um, oh, yeah. or something else. Oh yeah, because Harry's but, still. <laughs> you're, you're oh, I wasn't I wasn't going there with that. I was you're saying that d- it might dirty. be. Yeah. Well, right, right. I mean, literally, Harry or Harry's talking crosses, about how he make sure to stay the up boundaries that are set up around his house to yes. get to him. You know, that's a boundary. And anyway. Harry and Harry state has a tradition of, uh, being awake at midnight for the, uh, the crossing from Christmas Eve into Christmas. Right. Um, 
And so he's so doing he, that again. And then he sort of just, he has his, his spider sense tingles and he can sense that Coral is staring creepily at him through his <laughs> bedroom window. Yeah, you're right, which is very Twilight. And what, what I loved about that is it's set up like right after he's thinking about Santa and how nice it would be if there was a mysterious mm. figure who entered your house at night and brought you presents. A chill went down Harry's spine then, an, an, intimid- an intimation of something dreadful approaching. And then, yeah, it's Professor Quirrell at the window, and he's like, oh, fear not, I've charmed your parents to sleep. They shall not awake until I have departed. Which, just like, no one comments on? Um, it, it seems I to realize, imply that- I think what I'm remembering is not from, like, the Lost Boys with, like, Kiefer Sutherland, like, floating outside somebody's window at night. It's like, oh, come fly away with us. Like, that's where it's I, been a long time since I've seen that now. movie. Uh, but yes, Vampires. That rings yes. a bell. Um, so there, I, I just think it's dreamy, dreamy vampires. I just think it's funny that Harry doesn't remark like, "Wait, you broke into my house and basically magically knocked my parents unconscious." Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, they they roll right past that. Coral uh, attempts to apologize. Shh, Harry, just just let it happen. Just let it. Happen. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> For the record, there was nothing like this in the notes, but it was. I, I made the joke about that, and then you're the one rolling with it. So, um, yeah, the uh, what does happen is Quirrell is there, and he says, Hey, um, sorry, I was kind of being a dick you're, about You're some... a very good boy, Harry. All right. Very good boy. And people are, I can hear them, I can hear people unsubscribing. <laughs> Uh, good times. It, it was funny. I don't know if it was worth it, but it's staying in. So <laughs> we'll, we'll push past it. And what we have is uh, Quirrell mentions that, like, also, there's a couple things I like about it. He, he shows up and he just sort of nonchalantly points out that, like, uh, well, so there, I don't, I, man, it's a such a short chapter, but I want to pull most of it out. Um, like, Harry says, "There's no one supposed to know where I am. Even owls are delivering my mail to Hogwarts, not here." And Harry apparently had been asked about that and agreed willingly. He said it would be silly if a Death Eater could win the whole war at any time just by mailing him a magically triggered hand grenade, which is <laughs> like, you know, a funny mental image of mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, let's just mail him a bomb, and we know that owls magically find their recipients. So yeah, perfect, we win. Um, Surprised that doesn't happen more often. Like, and uh, the crow was like, uh, "Yeah, but don't worry, like Death Eaters wouldn't know to look in a phone book." <laughs> Yeah, and then he says, and it did take a considerable amount of effort to cross the wards that the headmaster put around your house. Of course, if anyone knew your address, they'd just wait outside and attack you next time you left. So he's he's just properly pessimistic, but he just does like a, a nice little flex of like, oh yeah, you know, headmaster Albus Dumbledore, the most powerful wizard in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it took a little effort, but I got over the walls mm-hmm. he put up. And he's like, so what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I came to apologize. I shouldn't have spoken to you so harshly. And Harry's like, don't don't condescend and apologize to me. He's like, okay, then if I'm going to treat you like an equal, then, you know, you should know that you've gravely violated the etiquette be- between friendly Slytherins. You know, you shouldn't meddle in my stuff without talking with me first, and I won't meddle in yours because we're playing the game, but we need to do it, like, uh, in a coordinated way unless we're playing against each other. So just so you know, that's how this shit works. And um, Harry says, I'm sorry. And Quirrell just, instead of saying don't apologize, he says, apology accepted. <laughs> <laughs> um I did read that, like, because this whole thing is, like, besides the the funny, uh, sexy time innuendo, um, it is, like, there's a whole creepy, like, oh, he, like, broke into his house in the middle of the night, um, and then they're, the romantic scene at the end, uh, all of this 
being sort of sinisterly manipulative like it very much plays that way and and so there there was like a weird power game about like harry saying like don't apologize and he's like okay i won't and then harry apologizing and him saying apology accepted like he like reversed that uh he says oh i came to apologize and now i'm not going to apologize and i'm going to get you to apologize to me yeah there are, and now a, let's go look at the stars yeah there's a nice status differential between them that Quirrell's okay with and uh there's just the one line before the star bit that I liked where, um, uh, well, uh, yeah, everyone should, just, they should be reading along. So not to read every line, but, um, he does say, uh, that reminds me, says Harry, Merry Christmas. And he's like, I suppose if it's not an apology, then it must be a Christmas gift. The first one I've ever given in fact, which is kind of sad. Um, and then he's like, put on your coat or take a warming potion. If you have one and meet me outside under the stars, I'll see if I can maintain it a little longer this time. And then they spend the transition from Christmas Eve to Christmas under a true image of the night sky and the stars. And I wrote that it's not the least bit romantic. <laughs> it was another I was, good try- line I was trying to, I was trying to cr- get ahead of you. Yes, they crossed the boundary from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day within that timeless void where earthly rotations meant nothing. The one true everlasting silent night. Good line. Yeah. And I tried to, to get ahead of all the any perceived you brining this by saying and it's not the least bit romantic but man you beat me to the punch at the top of the chapter so and then you said uh, in the notes here you're obsessed you want to fuck quirrell don't you and i said let's be real Quir- i bet quirrell's a freak in the sheets so <laughs> although i doubt he is anything approaching a thorough and tender lover so <laughs> <laughs> i bet it's just completely uh, self-interested with him it's probably it's very <laughs> cerebral it's probably very cold did I mistype this at the chapter summary for chapter 28 or 38, or did you change it to Luscious Malfoy? <laughs> no, that must have been you. Oh, man. Uh, no, okay. actually, no, I thought you had a, no, well, yeah, so you just fixed it to the uh, misspelling that you had before. There's no O in Lucius. Oh, I see. So you were you were merely an S away from Luscious, and so I, oh, I got I you the rest it. of the way there. Well, you nailed it. Um, <laughs> Luscious Malfoy. Perfect. So it, this one is uh, chapter 38, The Cardinal Sin. And I'm not clear what the cardinal sin is here. Um, we'll see if we can figure that out yeah, by I the end that. of it. Uh, so it, it, he's back at platform nine and three quarters. He'd been dropped off and it's he's got like an hour to kill. So he buys a copy of the Quibbler. And there's this nice little moment like between when he takes off his, his scarf and coat. And then he stands there in the cold, like just being a muggle for a yeah. second. Then he puts on his robes and puts on a warming charm. And the boy who lived was back. I like that. Uh, well, and it's it was it was like the opposite of the of the scene when he leaves, like thinking like, oh, Muggle life has got so much bullshit you have to deal with, and not like, oh, even staying warm, it's just like, well, will you just cast a spell and you're warm? Yeah, mm-hmm. sounds pretty chill, or the opposite of chill. It sounds pretty warm. Yes. Um. So yeah, like I said, he got an hour to kill, and he's like, oh, I'll go buy a quibbler, and then he sees the headline: Sloshed Sears spills secrets, Dark Lord to return. <laughs> Which, if you uh. I think I mentioned this, but in the audiobook, they're read by somebody who reads them like in like the 1950s, like radio announcer voice. Oh, nice. I don't know if you've ever seen Avatar, The Last Airbender, mm-hmm. the TV series. Uh, you should watch it with your daughter. I think you guys would both love it. There's enough in there to enjoy for adults and kids. Um, anyway, the the guy who reads the Quibble headlines, when they open up each of the episodes of Avatar, uh, there's uh, like a recap of the previous episode mm-hmm. that's done in that exact announcer voice. Was it like Slashia spell secrets? Dark Lord yeah, return. Exactly, and like it, like it's like with like a little staticky overlay, oh, like, like on purpose. Dun, 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 dun. Almost. Also, if you've liked and enjoyed Avatar, uh, you can 
check out the uh, uh, on the Doofcast. They did an episode for uh, I think all three seasons of Avatar: The Last Airbender and the maybe the first season of Legend of Korra, which is like the sequel season or sequel series. Um, nice. Anyway, another plug for other awesome Doof content. Which reminds me, as <laughs> long as I'm not going to just literally brought to you by Doof Media. That's right. Actually, and I, I should plug too that legit plug. Um, I'm always plugging Matt and Scott's stuff, but uh, the um, the Deep Impact was the packed read through book uh, by Elliot and Rubin, and today they're doing their twenty. Well, well, today uh, the day of recording, Saturday the seventh. Uh, that sounds right. Sure. Um, they're doing a twenty four hour like uh, a full long twenty four hour recording of. Um, I guess synapse or synopsis and and final thoughts on Pact, and with an interview with Wildbo, the author, which is kind of cool. Nice. I don't think Wildbo is going to be there for the full twenty four hours, but he's going to be there for part <laughs> of it. Um, so I am not too. Where is he in the, where is he in the real yet. world? Uh, Canada. Canada. Um, yeah, so I didn't tune in because I haven't read Pact yet, and I'm sure it's full of spoilers. But luckily, this will be stored forever at some point, available to find later. So if you haven't read Pact and you're going to like me eventually. Uh, do check out Elliot and Ruben's Deep Impact, um, or if you have read it and want to revisit it again. So, all right, plugs aside, we are looking at. Uh, well, so then Harry looks at the headline and kind of panics, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, one copy," and he then sees the rest of the headline: "Slosh Seer spills secrets, Dark Lord to return, comma well wed Draco Malfoy." And he's like, oh, right, this is like a fucking garbage rag newspaper. I like and the then, line he, he, said, he says to the vendor, seriously, who reads this stuff? You, said the vendor. <laughs> like, well, shit, he got me there. <laughs> oh, burn. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess it sells. Um, and then there's, Harry was just reading about the ministry, ministry's proposed marriage law to ban all marriages <laughs> when. Um, and then Lucius Malfoy shows up and starts hassling Harry. And uh, it's um, it it's this kind of ominous exchange because you're not really clear what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's definitely puzzling and it's puzzling on purpose. And um, we can summarize as much of it as we want, yeah. but it's it's not clear. I like there was a good thing when because uh, he does like the typical like Mr. Potter, Mr. Matt, like sort of read between the lines, fake politeness to each other but that it was another cool line i like that the man was still he's talking describing malfoy the man was still carrying that same cane lacquered in black with a silver snake's head for its handle and something about his grip silently said this is a weapon of deadly power not i am feeble and leaning on this it's a good line and it just made me think real like okay what does that look like how would he be holding it i appreciate him like like holding it up in the air a little a little overly high up I thought it was good. Yeah. It was a good visual. No, totally. It. And it kind of makes me think we don't see a lot of like magical artifacts. There's yeah. a couple mentioned in like the canon books. I guess there's the cloak of invisibility in this one. It kind of makes you wonder like if you can spend a lot of money or if you have an old family relic from, you know, a thousand years ago or if you're really powerful or whatever. Yeah. What can you imbue into an object yeah. that would be really cool? Or was that like, is his wand, his, like has his wand become the cane or who, who knows? I guess because wizards can movies. use, my, you don't have to use your one and only one wand, do you? No, that so, yeah, I think you're best with the one that's like chosen for you yeah. or something, or that you chooses you. But like, there's no reason you can't use someone else's. Like the the Weasleys are using secondhand wands. Yeah. So that is interesting. I wonder, uh, like, 
it makes me think that I think in the movies, I think he kept his wand in his cane, but like it could be cooler than that. Mm-hmm. Maybe if he hit somebody at the end of this, his cane in this, it's like the melt stick from yeah. Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, there's a whole because there's a whole word because uh, Lucius Malfoy still ends up giving his wand to Voldemort uh, in the later books. Oh, I so, forgot uh, that. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, because I was thinking that too. I'm like, oh well, no, it can't be his actual wand. He can't have made his wand into a cane because he gives his wand to Voldemort eventually. But who knows? I don't Man. think that I don't remember the cane being in the book. I just thought it was a cool uh, visual is kind of the wrong word for it, but it's just like a really good description of like, because then it made me wonder like, okay, how do you hold something? Because you could, you could almost think like there would be a way you could hold it that would make it seem like more like subtly threatening. Yeah. Um, like I, I'm, I'm picturing like Merlin with his, with his staff. Like yeah. I, I, there's probably visuals of him like, you know, using it as a walking stick, but yeah. it's like, no, this is like actually like a crazy powerful artifact. Yeah. Cause there's, I mean, cause you could just lean on it. You could lean on it like casually where it was like unimportant. You could lean on it like, oh, you really needed it as a cane. But then there's a way that you could subtly carry it that like said like, oh no, I'm carrying this around cause I could fuck you up with it. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, we do see him do one thing with it. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but we see it at some point. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, there's there's this mysterious exchange where um, I we can talk about as much of it as you want in detail, or we can just say it's confusing and mysterious. Yeah. And well, yeah, because I was I was I didn't quite get. So he comes up and he uh, what he says to Harry is like I I read uh, what you said in response to Quirrell, um, and I wanted to know like on whose behalf was that for. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get like who it was sort of like, who are you working for? Basically was, uh, was what he said, but I didn't really, I didn't understand the significance of that in terms of like, why, why was it that Harry was like, oh, you know, authoritarianism bad, which is sort of like the gist of what his speech was. Like, what was it about that that made Lucius think that there was some, you know, greater politicking going on? Yeah, it's like. What's funny is, like... Uh, says, well, I was puzzled at first, for it seemed not in your own interest. It took me days to understand whose interest was being served. And then it all finally became clear. So I guess we don't get told, but I don't, like, I didn't even really get what was... I didn't, I didn't understand what Lucius found puzzling about what Harry said. It's... Maybe it has something to do with, like, the thing they said right before that. And again, like, what's fun about this is, like... Well, at, at the end, it's revealed that Harry has no idea what they're talking about. And he's just saying things to sound mysterious and confusing on purpose. Um, so, but right before the like puzzling him, uh, uh, Lucius puzzling over his remarks at Quirrell's speech, there was like, um, it says, uh, let us, it's Malfoy talking, let us dispense with games. If my suspicions are true, you would hardly do Dumbledore's bidding in any case, Mr. Potter. And actually, I should mention really quick, the voice actor for Lucius Malfoy does this awesome sinister thing. You should, you know, if you have the podcast, the audiobook feed in your uh, podcast feed, you should definitely just check out 38 and skim around for his voice. It's this, yeah. he sounds like a perfect, like, supervillain. Um, and so he's, uh, he says, you wouldn't be, dumb- you wouldn't, if my suspicions are true, you'd hardly do Dumbledore's bidding in any case, Mr. Potter. There was a slight pause. So you know, Harry said, his voice cold. Tell me, at what point exactly did you realize? And then that's when he says the thing about Quirrell's speech. Mm-hmm. And he says, ah, very clever of you, but perhaps you mistake my interests. Perhaps I do. Um, that is precisely what I fear, that you might be playing strange games with my son to a purpose I cannot guess. And <laughs> um, 
like again all of the reactions we get out of lucius and everything that harry is saying is made all the funnier at the end when he tells draco that like okay just to be clear uh i have no idea what we're talking about so <laughs> uh, you know i it, don't read into anything because i was just kind of bullshitting the entire time <laughs> But there's this line that, like, makes no sense because we don't know what the hell Lucius is thinking, uh, where, like, I find it interesting, said Harry, putting steel into his own voice, that you think I could benefit from doing Draco harm. But it is relevant, Lucius. He is my friend, and I do not, do not betray my friends. What? Whispered Lucius. His face showed sheer shock, and it's, like, mm-hmm. shocking about that. It's a kid saying he's his friend. But Lucius is clearly having a conversation that Harry is not having, and... <laughs> Then uh, Madame Longbottom and, and Neville show up, and uh, he gives his whole spiel about, "Oh yes, I was imperious, young man. I, you know." I thought there was, ha- a, there was just an interesting like the level of bullshit around it. I thought it was it was just sort of interesting. Oh, like, it's clear, like it's, the whole story that he had concocted in that kind of weird, almost politician way of like, I have this complete line of bullshit that is very transparently bullshit, but we all, for some reason, for etiquette that makes no sense, have to pretend that we think it's otherwise. It's kind of like, you can't prove shit. Yeah. So here, here's the thing I've been telling everybody for the last decade, and he, you can tell this is a rehearsed line from him, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and then I like I like uh, Neville's grandma here. Mm-hmm. She's just like ignore him. He must spend the rest of his life pretending for fear of your testimony under Veritaserum. And uh, will you will you request this Harridan to depart, Mister Potter? He's like, no, I think I'm good. I prefer to uh, um, deal with the part of House Malfoy that's my own age. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, I do feel the fool now. This whole time you were just pretending to have no idea what we were talking about. Which is doubly funny because that's true, but there's never a moment where Harry actually does realize what they're talking about. (laughs) And so Lucius raises his cane a few centimeters and strikes the ground, and the world vanishes in a pale haze, and and all the sounds are quiet. There's nothing in the universe except for Harry and Lucius Malfoy and the snake-headed cane. This is a it was a cool that's a cool visual. The line and you can sort of hear the silence. Uh, and how that's done. And then this is a good, I'll, I'll steal it. You were about to read, but I'm going to steal it anyway. Please. Um, and then, because there, it's this sort of like, you, at least for me, did he say it? But yeah, that this, for me, it's like, oh, like the entire background has just gone white and silent and it's just him and Harry. Um, and he says, my son is my heart, said the senior Malfoy, the last worst, worthwhile thing I have left in this world. And this I say to you in a spirit of friendship. If he were to come to harm, I would give my life over to vengeance. But so long as my son does not come to harm, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors. And as, I, as you have asked nothing more of me, I will ask nothing more of you. I thought it was cool. It was because it was like a, like this, the way you see, I don't know, like this strange vision of like when, like the the beautiful demon that's actually ugly underneath. Like you just get to see this, like the emptiness in Malfoy, like when he's not pretending to be all slicking together, he's like, I'm dead inside, but Lucius is, uh, but uh, Draco is the last thing left that's important to me. Um, So it's sort of like you get to see the the darkness to a dark person. Um, And it's just this sort of like sad, like this is the last one thing that's important to him. That's like that he has these positive feelings about his own son. And that's like the only thing that's not yet dead in him. I thought it was cool. And like, you combine all that with like this suddenly, like, like Lucius put presses the pause button on reality. Um, so that they could have this like little silent conversation. That was a pretty cool, little powerful, short little scene. Yeah. I liked it a lot too. And there's, 
like my inner Slytherin is like reading this and saying, dude, why would you tell me that? You're saying if I want you to throw away everything you care about, all I have to do is kill your son. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, it's, I mean, granted, Harry's not going to do that because that's not what Harry's about. But if I was an evil person and I wanted to fuck up, you know, Lucius Malfoy and help Dumbledore, mm-hmm. um, which I guess uh, it's clear to Malfoy for reasons that Harry doesn't understand that he's not going to help Dumbledore or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's it was just uh, I don't know. It, it's kind of funny. He, but yeah, he it's it it is the the darkness be not behind Malfoy, the, uh, behind Lucius Malfoy, but it's also nice. Like he does say, I care, like the, my son is my heart and I will destroy you if you hurt him. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so he's, he's, he's a dark evil dude, but he cares about his son and he loves him enough to, to abandon all of his other endeavors to, uh, protect him, which is cool. So. Yeah. Then, I thought it was, it was like, it was that. And also it's like, it shows you like how dark he is. Cause, cause he says like, this is the only thing left for me. Um, so it's not like, oh yeah, you know, you think I'm evil, but I'm actually, you know, if you get to know me, I'm a good thing. It's like, no, there's nothing good about me except this one life. This is the only remaining good thing about me. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a good point. And that's, that's an interesting, uh, that adds, that's yeah. what I mean, you know, I've, I've read this book a few times and this is just, it's, it's every, every time we sit down and talk about it, you point out things that I've never noticed and probably wouldn't have noticed, um, I like well, certainly there's no reason I think I would pick it up on the sixth read, not the fifth. <laughs> so, uh, no, that's that's a really good point. I I, I appreciate that perspective. It's it's if uh, if nothing else, I'm really enjoying the conversations about it. So, um, I don't know if I conveyed exactly what I was trying to there, but we have to move on because of time. So, mm. uh, it's they they depart from Malfoy Manor, and then um, Neville kind of has like a little panic attack because he's like, oh my god, that was Lucius Malfoy, and he just sits down on the ground and. Neville's grandma is like, oh yeah, you know, I don't necessarily. Oh, actually, she said she liked Quirrell's speech and didn't like Harry's. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And that, and that she liked some of the changes he brought in my grandson, but not all of them. And he's like, oh, send me a list of the ones you like, and I'll see what <laughs> I can do. And uh, then Neville says, you're not going to try and fix. You're going to try and fix all the changes she approves of, right? And he's like, not all of them. I just want to make sure I'm not corrupting you. <laughs> and then we get the scene changed to with with Draco, where he's like, what did you say to father? And he's like, uh, what, can I ask you first what he said I said to you before he dropped you <laughs> off? And he's like, he said that I should tell you right away if you seem to be threatening me. That I should tell him right away if there's anything I was doing that could pose a threat to you. Father thinks you're dangerous, Harry. And whatever you said to him today, it scared him. It's not a good idea to scare father. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, hell. He's like, so I like what the did way, you talk the about? The way he refers to him as father, like that's his name, makes it seem like extra, like, formal and, like, intimidating yeah it's it's an extra title and yeah. he's the only one who talks about his dad like with again with the with mm. the moniker of father he's it's a very formal thing um and then he's like so what did you talk about and he's like so then harry what did you talk about with father i don't know actually so it's very important that i not just make stuff up <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line i like the yeah. like the payout because it's a while but like you don't we don't really like I wasn't sure what they're talking about, and then it's a while for you to pay off. Like, oh, Harry had no idea either. Yeah, that so I assume means that like it's going to later be clear to us what the hell Lucius was talking about. Hopefully, um, it's it's what's fun about it is that like this this payoff would have been super annoying if we had to wait like three chapters for yeah. it. But luckily, this is a really short chapter, and the reveal is given pretty quick, so we're not like 
we're not sitting here ripping this puzzle apart for <laughs> however many weeks it is between chapters or something when they're released back in the day. Uh, it, it's all revealed in the same chapter where it's like, yeah, I actually have no idea what he thinks we were talking about. So <laughs> yeah, I got, I got nothing for you. But I do have something for you, Brian, and that is assigned reading for the next uh, episode. That was a and solid segue. I tried. I get a good one a week. Mm, perfect. So I was I was going to actually do three, but I think there's enough to talk about in two, and it's a two-parter, so it works out great. So next week we can talk about the two-part chapter, Pretending to be Wise, which is chapters 39 and 40. And it'll be next week for our listeners, but for you and I, it'll be in two days. Wait. Three. Uh, three, two, uh, yeah. Soon. It will be soon. Yeah, because of scheduling conflicts, we recorded this one on a Saturday, uh, not our usual Tuesday, so uh, we've got less less time to put everything together for the next one. But it means this is hot on the presses, though. You folks listen right. to this on Monday. This is not even 48 hours as, old. It's about as close as you're going to get to them being, being live. So yeah, next uh, week we'll do chapters 39 and 40 and that's all i've got for you this week what about you brian i i'm uh, you know i was out of original thoughts like 45 minutes ago <laughs> this did run on surprisingly long but <laughs> i've never heard any complaints about the length that's true. there's a joke in there somewhere <laughs> nice Nice. All right. So remember that uh, you can find us at doofmedia.com, um, patreon.com slash doofmedia. If you have a buck to throw our way, go for it. You get access to all kinds of cool benefits, like being able to vote in the uh, quarterly fan art contests, uh, which are really right now just done for Ward and Pact and those things. But when we hit 400 uh, Patreons, Patreons, patrons, we're going to... Uh, add a an art contest with a cash prize for the methods of rationality uh fan fiction this podcast as well so and if, if anybody um, wants to become a patron for a buck in the in the next week by by the next recording i will willingly pretend that this is sponsored by anything you like okay perfect Un- and how, how unless, should they I, don't, unless I don't feel like it or i don't think it's funny okay well with those caveats how will they let you know <laughs> we've got uh, an email domain that, that directs oh, yeah. both of us so you're welcome is to is that is that uh the one i set up or the one on uh yeah it's the, it's the one yeah, that you set we, up. we want more at navalplace.com which now everybody will misspell which you, yeah, you can I look it up on the, on the on the dude it's it's n n is in nancy a v is in victor e l like like the citrus fruit or your belly button navalplace.com we want more m-o-r or w-w-m at navalplace.com you know what you should probably just go to the doof website and find it there <laughs> and uh or just hit us on the discord for fun yeah exactly so also for a buck you get to join the doof media discord where you can ping us and bug us all you want and we will reply whenever we can because neither of us are crazy active on discord but i do read all of the uh i read both of the channels I, i'm assuming brian reads one of them there's a spoilers one and there's a non-spoilers one and i'll find every ping that's sent my way so that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me is ping me on discord um, but the email works too, because that goes straight to us as well. And you mentioned, you told me, I think, over lunch where Naval Place came from. Uh, it was the street I lived on when I lived in San Diego. Now people can, like, stalk me. Oh, great. I thought it was something <laughs> to do with, like, your first business, or did you name it that? Uh, too? I named my business after the street I lived on. Nice. <laughs> my first house, the house that, the street that I grew up on, was Wells Fargo. Seriously? So I, yep. Nice. So I, I can't name my business you got after Wells, that. Wellsfargo.com. 
Like, was that taken? Right. Is that taken already? I think so. I think it's the name of a gigantic bank or something. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. No, I lived on the street. I registered the domain name, uh, even, and then I grandfathered into like a Google uh, domain account with it. Nice. So I've had that for like 15 years or something. But cool. Yeah. Well, awesome. So with that, I am. I do this thing at the end of every episode where I don't know how to end them. So we're gonna just cut it here. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Rate and review on iTunes, etc. And um, yep, I'm doing that thing that I always do. Bye, everybody. Later.